like a freak on a leash Feeling like I have no release How many times have I felt diseased? Nothing in my life is free, is free The following is intended only for mature audiences Discretion advised Okay, this is the last one. God bless. Oh. <laughs> like I told you, I want to burn through as many of these as I can so we don't have to worry about it for a while. Spawn number 37, released November 16, 1995. This is in the same month as Malibu began producing Terminator 2 comics. I'm sure I'm not alone in always associating the Terminator comics with either Now or Dark Horse and completing for forgetting that Malibu had the specifically Terminator 2 license and produced a number of books for that. Uh, you have X-Force number 50 out, which had a Rob Liefeld cover, which I think anticipates Liefeld doing less work for Image and more work from Marvel in the very near future. We've got Sensational Spider-Man number zero with Dan Jurgens. I think one of the least interesting, least inspired runs of Spider-Man's history. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, especially, you, uh, you won't have listened to it, but uh, Dan Jurgens had things accused uh, against him in the Wildstar episode that's like, I always thought was another person, Mike Carlin specifically. And it's like, yeah. to know that it was Dan Jurgens pulling a bunch of this fucking B-Diva bullshit. I, I, I'm not, I've never been a big fan of him and I'm even less of a fan of him now. So I'm calling him out. Dark Stars number 38 came out this month. This was a book that was started by Travis Charest before he moved over to Image and now it's a book that has ceased to exist. More and more books get cancelled as we're into the boom years at this point. Uh, Dark Stars joins titles like Anima, Animal Man, Black Lightning, Damage, Doom Patrol, Gunfire, Manhunter, New Titans, Outsiders, Primal Force, Rebels 95, Xenobrood, and DC's Judge Dread license in the trash heap. DC's not fucking around with a lot of these books anymore. Uh, meanwhile, Powers That Be number one comes out. Remember that one? Powers That that was Broadway no. Comics. It was an anthology title that featured Starseed and Fatale. Any of that ring any bells? I, I remember seeing the Broadway, but no. Yeah, you didn't buy no, any no. of those? I actually bought those. No. I, I liked them okay. That's when, uh, after Jim Shooter's Defiant failed, he went to Lorne Michaels and uh, Saturday Night Live and uh, got some money out of him to try to launch one more comic book company. I believe that's the last one that he had attempted to do. Oh, wow. Uh, so this, this, this is the start of his last company, which folded within a year's time, as I recall. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Scott Clark. Clark's Strike Force America number one and Tony Daniels Elementals number one of three are released by Kamiko. This is inventory material. This is a deal where the guy who bought the rights to the Kamiko's properties was cataloging material for a number of years. So these are guys who've made names for themselves, but they'd done early work that was not particularly good that they're releasing several years after the fact to try to capitalize on their names. But Kamiko's pretty much dead at this point anyway. I'm not even sure if they finished those miniseries despite having that material as inventory. You had the first issue of Rip Claw's ongoing series, which only ran for six issues. We also have the launch of the brand new ongoing Youngblood series, which will only last ten issues total. The issue at hand though, the spawn issue, is The Freak. And once again, we've got writer Alan Moore coming back, I think, for his last single issue of Spawn. Based on a plot, though, by Todd McFarlane, which Alan Moore having a plot dictated by Todd McFarlane, that's some fucked up shit. And then we've got art, as usual, by Greg Capullo, with special thanks to Kevin Conrad and Julia Simmons and Chance Wolf, who 
is the preferred inker of Jim Valentino at this point in time. The issue is dedicated to Keith Giffen. Okay. Do you remember who the last issue was dedicated to? Ernie Keith Giffen. I, I guess they forgot to find a new person to dedicate the issue to. So Keith Giffen has two issues dedicated to him in a row. And then do you uh, recall the cover to this one? This one is the one with Freak, right? He's holding the mic. Yeah, doesn't that cover seem a little familiar to you? I mean, it's very evil Ernie. I was thinking something a little closer to home, maybe even uh, related to somebody who's had a issue dedicated to them fairly recently. He's given? I know Tom McFarlane's done a few iconic covers that have been swiped a bunch. What cover do you think has been swiped the most of all, except for maybe Spider-Man number one? Uh, maybe uh, that Hulk cover where the Hulk is reflected in Wolverine's claws? Oh, okay. Yeah, now you start to see it? Now I see it, now I see okay. it. Okay, so it's Capullo swiping Tom McFarlane, self-swell swiping, essentially. No, no, it's not swiping, it's, uh, what is it? An homage. Yeah. Homaging your boss. So, a little bit of ass-kissing. Yeah. Remember that prostitute yeah, yeah. a few issues back who had a tattoo of a, of a, a lips on her tushy? Capullo's eh, doing a little bit of that his own self right now. Oh, you see, you know, great head bills to pay. I've done the majority of the synopsis recently. How much of the story do you remember? Do you think you can actually, like, flip through this story right quick and tell me what happens? Because it's not a complicated story, especially by like Alan Moore standards. Kind of, it looks like it's just the origins of the freak, which do I tell. didn't know the freak even had his own comic. I don't remember reading this one. Does it look like something you'd ever want to read? Yeah. So, do you want to wait and read it and do another time? Yeah, let's, yeah, let, yeah, let's just do another time. I, actually, if Alan Moore wrote that, I want to read it. I'm not sure you do, I wanna, I but, but, but Alan Moore did script it, so we'll, we'll set that one aside. Well, that's what I want. I want to. I want to see how that works out for Alan Moore. Where if he's if he's scripting someone else's book, like how does that work out for him? <laughs> I'm, I'm almost curious. Okay, we'll hold off. Because he, he has a very distinctive like. I mean, he loves dialogue, and his dialogue is very well. Well, let, uh, let me tell you, there's a whole lot of dialogue, so it's a little bit like Todd wrote it himself, given how much dialogue there is. And also, like Todd, there's a lot of dialogue that doesn't mean jack shit to the well, actual story. What that's what I'm saying. That Todd Todd was more like like that. Where I kind of feel uh, like this is Alan Moore homaging Todd Befarlane on the interiors the way that Capullo did on the exteriors yeah. and uh, by homage I think it's almost like a uh, discreet parody is what I think he's doing I think that Alan Moore decided to write like Todd McFarlane and of course he's Alan Moore so he has a floor that Todd does not have but it's very McFarlane-esque the way that Alan Moore decides to script the book so I I, I, I do want to read it now because I want to know if it's Alan Moore's style of writing with Todd's voice all involved in it we'll see okay <laughs> to so be we'll continued this yeah this one this one I'll definitely I, I want to be more interactive with this one okay so I'll hold off on that one. I'm going to hit stop why can't we go back to 63 to sit in those old driving seats and listen to it I got a phone call from Steve. He and I had been working with Tundra, but Tundra was winding down. It was going to about to get sold to Kitchen Sink, and we could see the writing on the wall there. So we were looking for a new way to do our own comics outside of the large publishers of DC and Marvel, who uh, we'd been uh, having a lot of problems with in the previous 10 years. What's interesting, I think, about that time period is what was going on in the market. We were coming at the, to the end of a really um, uh, amazing decade of comics in America, uh, the 19 
1980s, where the distribution network had flowered and the number of comic book stores had, you know, mushroomed all around the country so that comics were selling better and better. And they'd freed themselves from the comics code, which had limited what could be in comic. And it's kind of like a golden age, I think, of comics in America as the 80s. And just a lot of great stuff came out and a lot of stuff that ended up shaping culture, you know, like Watchmen and uh, from hell and Swamp Thing, especially. Yeah. Swamp Thing was the one that really broke open DC Comics from their moribund, hidebound ways. But what was happening was that the market was exploding too fast. It was bubbling up. It had become like a collector's, crazy collector's market where people were paying insane prices for comics that weren't worth anything. And so it was the beginning of people putting out endless number ones just for the collector market. People were speculating on large boxes of comics before they were even printed. A lot of comics never got on the stands. They just sat in boxes because these boxes were being bought and sold by shadowy dealers somewhere. A lot of it didn't make any sense at all. But at the same time, the image guys had really hit a home run out of the park by launching their imprint at the time they did. They were all refugees from Marvel. You know, they were like a lot of the top Marvel artists and they decided to put their own company together. And it was just at the right timing. In the beginning, they used a lot of the rhetoric that my generation had used about creator rights. And it looked to us like, yeah, these guys, you know, they're standing up for creators and they're stepping away from the big paychecks at Marvel and they're doing it themselves. So it looked like a really, really good thing for us. We didn't understand at the time how precarious the business was, but it was getting ready to explode in a very bad way right while we were doing 1963. That landscape, that business landscape helped shape and define what happened with 1963 and why the annual didn't happen and uh, why 1963 did not carry on. That was one of the big reasons. 30 years ago, 1993, I've talked to you about Alamore a bunch, and we've talked about Image Comics shit a bunch, Mr. Fix-It. You didn't read 1993 when it came out, I'm sure. 1963? The, the, the book. Oh, sorry, 1963. Pardon me. Okay, you keep saying 1993. I'm like, wait. I well, no, but it came, it came out in 93, though. It's 30 yes, years but old. but it's 1960, right. the book. You didn't read that shit when it came out. No, I did not. For me, I had supported most of the launch Image books, but they launched in 92. So by 93, I was starting to rear that shit back because I wasn't happy with so much of the stuff that was coming out from Image. And this just didn't really appear to me like a lot of 90s kids i wanted the new shit i wanted the shit with the flashy art and the glossy stock and the really nice color computer coloring and shit i was not interested in old timey 1960s shit 1963 shit now you've told me many times that i helped get you into alan moore yeah. so you had you read anything alan moore before we met i definitely read the superman story what happened to the man of tomorrow i remember reading kin and joke i don't think you'd have done any swamp thing by that point or you might have been into it already without me having to be involved no i don't think i read swamp because i wasn't into Swamp Thing yet? Yeah, I was into the movies, but Watchmen probably. I read Watchmen, yes, because I remember I remember the individual issues of Watchmen being yeah. at, like going to conventions and that in uh, Dark Knight Returns, like those being the big sellers at the conventions. Mm -hmm. But up to that point, no, I mean I didn't follow him per se. I but you had had exposure to his work. Some of it, he yeah, just but, wasn't a draw for well, you. No, I I hadn't gotten to that level yet where I was more interested in the writer than the artist. I was mm -hmm. still at the the artist level where ooh pretty pictures me like. I hadn't really realized no the the words were so much more important like that told the actual story so no i hadn't gotten into him yet yet but i was i had you know some some slight taste of that style of writing that deconstruction of comic book character stuff yeah yeah and then mac you were collecting by 1993 yeah. as i recall yeah but you didn't really have any interest in image comics no nah. no nope. nah. nope. and do you, do you recall if you'd read any alan moore stuff at that point nah. no and i'm sure because i'm looking on your bookshelf you got watchmen on your bookshelf yeah. so you've read that at least yeah. but is there anything else nah. nope just nah. not nah. do you have a 
those? Do you have nah. based on the book? Do you have an opinion of Alan Moore, or is he just a guy to you? Uh, he, I mean, he's uh, I I respect his reputation. Mm-hmm. He never wrote any of your guys, though. No. Yeah. So yeah. So just some I mean, of that. that. Sorry. I, no. True. Uh, so one of the things with this book is they did. I, I don't know if it was Hero Illustrated or Wizard or what, but they did a bunch of ash cans. I think almost every issue of the series had some kind of ash can, and some of them were the the chase ones where it was just a single color cardstock cover, but other ones they did where they were fancier, maybe they put some foil or some shit like that. And they would put it in places like Hero Illustrated with like a little five-page preview or something just the way to help promote it. And I'd read that and it just would completely turn me off. I had no interest in this stuff. After the bust, these things would be lining the quarter bits. It would have been super easy for me to pick it up and read them. I might have read one here or there. Didn't grab me. It wasn't my thing. Give you a little bit of backstory right quick. So Alan Moore had done Watchmen and Killing Joke and all the DC stuff and he'd made his bones and everything. But he had a falling out with Marvel way back over Miracle Man and them threatening to, oh. to sue Eclipse Comics. Time out. I read Killing Joe. Okay. Okay, there we go. Well, no. All right, back to your story. Uh, actually, for, hey, Boland. Right? Actually, I yeah, think right. Didn't yeah. he do Captain Brin? Yeah. I remember yeah. reading his Captain Brin. But stuff. that wasn't done for the U.S. market. That was a UK book. Well, the reprints, yeah. And then later on, they started reprinting that stuff in the, because he became Alan Moore. But it was it was originally just a UK book that was like in the late 80s and obviously into the 90s, Marvel UK started putting out stuff for the English market, but would be here in the States as well. But back then, that was purely for the Brits and not, none of that stuff was getting here to the States. And so he had a relationship with Marvel because of stuff like that. And I think he did like maybe Night Raven at some point, some, you know, random shit. But by the time he started getting famous for DC work, then they did Miracle Man over at Eclipse. And because of the whole Marvel Man thing, where basically Eclipse initially was going to just put out a book called Marvel Man, and Marvel said, no, you're not. And because of the threat of litigation, Moore got pissed off and basically swore off Airwork for Marvel again. Then you had the fuckery with Watchmen, which is a weird situation because the Watchmen are clearly based on the Charlton characters. They were originally written to be with the Charlton characters. And then Dick Giordano said, you know what? I, we really want to be able to do something with these characters in the future and once you're done with them those toys are going to be broken forever so why don't you just do it with your own characters instead and so he did and then he had to deal with DC where when the book finally went out of print the rights would revert back to him except of course DC has never allowed this stuff to go out of print and never will so long as they're still printing stuff it'll be kind of interesting at the future when they don't print shit anymore which is going to happen probably sooner rather than later and it's, it's almost like it's weird like they're maybe they're putting so much Watchmen stuff into their line now because if that stuff stays in print maybe they keep the Watchmen you know so if you're maybe that's as what they're as, as long as as something related to Watchmen yeah, is being as long printed as, you know uh, not Mr. Dr. Manhattan is somewhere in the DC universe they still right are. Doomsday Clock yeah or yeah. some shit like that or, or that stupid fucking Flashpoint Batman miniseries is out right now where they're going into stuff from Doomsday Clock where they're bringing back Dr. Manhattan but he's gonna be called the Watchman and it's like the son of Dr. Manhattan what the fuck and just See, yeah and you got Nostalgia who's this character that was like inspired by Adrian Veidt and his stuff that he set up in Doomsday Clock yeah never read Doomsday Clock mm-hmm. never read Doomsday Clock don't it's do horrible. that I wouldn't say it's horrible but it's so Jeff Johns and and Jeff Johns oh, Jeff Johns is a pejorative <laughs> yeah no I think Jeff Johns when he's great he's like a cross when, between when, when was that oh he's, he's been great plenty of times especially like the classic Justice JSA stuff when he's at his peak he's like a cross between Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas you know and, and that's great at his worst he is like a necrophile it's like he will just dig up any corpse of a concept that Alan Moore ever conceived of and just rape the bones it's 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 horrifying Doomsday Clock and now this Batman Flashpoint thing whatever uh, that it's a prime example of that bullshit well because I mean I used to love the Green Lantern Corps quite a bit mm-hmm. and then they have the green the red the yellow and I'm just yeah. like and that's all coming off of one Alan Moore story a little fucking five pager or... well and I, credit where credit is due I think Ethan Van Skyver had a, a, lo- a large hand in that as well but you know perpetuating it and yeah. prolonging it you know it, it could have been the A story and then we could have moved on and instead it was like DC's publishing 
plan for a decade straight. So yeah. that's part of the problem. Watchmen gets the fuckery happens and Alan Moore's like, fuck you DC, I'm not doing anything with you anymore. And he tried to do more self-published stuff since it had been shown clearly. Eclipse did Miracle Man and, and a whole bunch of other publishers had done stuff. So he thought he could make a go of it. And he tried to set up his own company. And I, I want to say he had like Spider-Baby graphics, but then apparently Mad Love was in the mix there. And I've never followed that stuff closely enough because all that stuff he was putting out in that time period, like Taboo and Big Numbers. Have you even ever read that shit? Like, and you're an Alan Moore guy, but have you ever uh, read I mean, that I shit? I read his, uh, which is the one that has to do with the Neverland. Uh, Lost Girls? Lost Girls. I remember right. reading Lost Girls. Well, that, that was serialized in Taboo, I think. Okay. Just like, and then From Hell was definitely serialized yeah, in Taboo. I've read yeah. From Hell. He's done some other stuff. I mean, it's, I, I can't recall it off the top of my head right now, but I remember reading other stuff of his that was just sure, sure. Like, but I'm just saying, like, that shit that he was doing, there was his own publishing stuff, and you're a connoisseur, and you still haven't read that shit. Yeah. And a lot of it never and got I actually finished. read his uh, crossed trade that he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cross plus 100 because he yeah, got expired. But, but fucking phenomenal. Sure, but that was Avatar Press. Yes. So he was working with a publisher. So, But I do follow his rank, but you're right. There's some stuff he's done that I just never read, or I wasn't drawn to it. I, I think we could honestly call those the wilderness years of Alan Moore. Okay. And so in the time period when I had enough money to be buying stuff and I was having an order catalog, that shit just went right past me. I, I, if it was still being published at the time where I was having access to like advanced comics and previews, I just didn't even notice it was there. Or it was already in progress and I was like, I'm not going to buy Taboo number four or whatever the fuck, right? So for me, like I had read Killing Joke. Uh, I had not by 1993 read Watchmen. That was a year later. And so I knew more by reputation, but I'd hardly read anything and he hadn't done anything in several years. And so all he had to me was that reputation. And then this is being solicited. It's like, what the fuck is that? And I can't talk about Image as a publisher because my experience with Image was not as a publisher. It was Jim Valentino as a publisher. Jim Valentino was the one that reached out to me first through Larry Martyr. A number of us had become quite close friends, we thought. And we were close friends at that time with Larry Martyr, creator of Bean World. Larry is best known in comics for writing and drawing Bean World. But in the comics industry at that time, and we're talking about 
But that's fine. I knew some things that Larry Martyr and Jim Valentino at that time didn't know. And one of them was that all of us, Alan, Rick Beach, myself, were sort of reeling from the implosion that was happening with Tundra. And for Alan Moore, it was compounded further by the implosion of big numbers, which was a project that Alan really believed in and had even put his own money into by launching uh, Mad Love as a publishing imprint. Some of that was subsidized by Dave Sim, but a lot of it was the money Alan had been earning from Watchmen and all the you know amazing work he had done for other comic publishers. And he lost a fortune on big numbers. What I knew when Larry called was we all needed a project to work on to get ourselves back up on our feet. Taboo was imploding because Tundra was imploding. I pulled the plug on Taboo before Tundra collapsed because I read the tea leaves and could see this is doomed. What I really wanted to do was this crazy dinosaur comp. I didn't have the means to do it. I didn't have the money. We were really in the hole from all the taboo years. So tell me about this. You're a Swamp Thing guy. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about Steve Bissett? Very big of art, though. Like, what, what material have you been exposed to outside of Swamp Thing by Bissett? Didn't he do some uh, Trailblazer? Or Hellblazer? <laughs> Trailblazer. Trailblazer. I mean, I, he drew some of the Swamp Thing appearances about uh, John Constantine. The Portland Hellblazers. But uh, I don't, he, I don't he think he did. I don't think he did the solo series at all. No, I think he was done by then. Then that's it. I can't think of anything else of his. Setup. Up to this time period, had you read anything by Rick Veach? I read his his JLA his uh what is it uh, Brad Pack Brad Pack okay Brad and you'd Pack. read that before, contemporaneous yes. to this okay I read Brad Pack I read because uh, I remember that too my brother and I had read Immortal that or yeah. what was it Max Immortal Max Immortal okay those were the only two oh and uh fuck the one that the, the cover looks like a Tide box oh the one the one Epic Comics yeah. yes okay those are about the only three things I can think of so you would have been exposed to in that time period yeah. well my uncle who kind of introduced me to the more adult side of comics I remember going to my uncle and him his wife would not allow him to have comics in the house because she thought they were just kidding mm-hmm. so he had a porch and he actually had a metal cabinet and he would put his comics in the metal cabinet and seal it and it put a plastic tarp over it because sometimes if it rained hard enough the rain could seep in through the little like giant screens along the walls but they were really thick screens so sometimes if it rained super hard like you would see a little bit of moisture come through and i remember going to his house and i remember him giving me my first copy of infinity gauntlet number one and showing me like the artwork and explaining george perez and then showing me some other like he's the one that I told you gave me the Adam Warlock book and so by the way I got my comic shipment today and I got that big DC poster book of George Perez artwork so I didn't take the time to crack it open yet but I'm looking forward to seeing that it's, unfortunately it's not career spanning it's just DC stuff I really it would be great I love if Marvel would do that and give us like another shot at the virgin poster of the cover of Infinity number one that'd but be something I, I could see I just remember like he showed me that stuff he's the one that got me to read like the crow Faust okay. I remember reading Faust he gave mm-hmm. me a copy of Faust we gotta talk about Faust one of these days especially really? in context yeah. of Spawn yeah me Faust, of course, he some heavy metals because he right. knew how to like heavy but, but part of it was the Rick Veach stuff. Yes, but it was that's, that's and, and did, did any of that stuff resonate with you beyond? I know Brad Pack. Brad, Pack. Brad Pack's oh, what we've been meaning to yeah, talk Brad about. Brad Pack was fantastic. But what about the other ones? Max Mortal, I really did. Six I want to say Max Mortal was later too. I want to say that might have been after. No, I mean because Max Mortal appears in 1963, so I know okay. that that had to be at least in the works, but it wouldn't have been a lot earlier than where Brad Pack. I remember was several years earlier because I was reading that. But not it was well before I read Watchmen. My my brother was buying Brat Pack, if I remember correctly. Okay, because honestly, yeah, one was one was way earlier. One was like eighty six. That was eighty six, eighty seven, somewhere okay, in there. So my I, brother picked that one up too. Because I remember reading the one and thinking, and I did not Brad understand Pack, the one Brad at Pack really stuck to me. Like, like I, that really, especially I, the covers, dude. Oh yeah, oh yeah, well, those are great covers. But like, uh, especially when the uh, Doctor Blasphemy has uh, got the Robin stand in, he's opening the trunks to see there he has no prick, you know. Well, no, the one I'm thinking the about is the one I mean. he's shaving his legs. So right, right, yeah. I remember thinking like that's so fucked. But that was my introduction to like, oh shit, like 
you can write fucked up stories about sure. characters. That but I remember, we're, we're going to do a Brad Pack one eventually. Okay. So hope save it for that podcast. But uh, did you actually understand the one? I tried to read the one back in the day, and I just well, I didn't get it honestly, at all. Honestly, I'd have to try to reread it now. I and I bought a pack. I think Bedrock City sold it to me as a set of six in a little like cheapy pack or cheapy for Bedrock anyway. Yeah. Um, but I still haven't gotten around to reading it yet. I couldn't tell you I understood it back then or not. I just remember right. reading it, and there was a lot of like heavy concepts in it. But my brain at the time was still, you know, I was very much Marvel guy, so it was a little outside of my wheelhouse, but it was still entertaining enough that I remember it. My first exposure, I don't know if you guys remember Jimco at all. Only, you definitely probably only wouldn't. from what you've talked about on many podcasts over right, the years. Right, right. Jimco was kind of, kind of like the seven, uh, uh, like a uh, Kmart slash Walmart kind of thing in its day, and they would have some remandered magazines and, and you know books and stuff. Wait, this place was called Jimco. Jimco, yeah, and I can tell you exactly Have where you it was not too. Listen to no, a single never, fucking he, podcast. The main one, the main one I bring that up on is Concrete Resume. I know he doesn't listen to that one. You know the 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 flea market off of Forty Five, and I think Edgebrook or the that general area. I think it was the first flea market I ever saw a tattoo parlor in. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's where Jimco used to be. Oh, okay. Because that the build, I think that is the Jimco building, and they renovated it and eventually became a flea market. I think it was a whole. How do business. you renovate to a flea market? Right, right. You know, well, see, I think that it it's became like a carcass. You know, the, the maggots grow. Well, you gotta understand, Jimco was in the '70s, so and this is you know, so they had to do something in that time frame, or it would have just collapsed by now. Uh, but I want to say they had something else there, like maybe an academy at some point, and then eventually became a flea market. So anyway, so that Jimco had a copy of the heavily metal movie adaptation of 1941. December, 1941, the California coast. The Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. The nation's heroes were on the alert. Look, you guys are Japs up! The dummy's right. <laughs> California could be next. Can I shoot them? I don't know! This is war. Oh, God, A country's honor was at stake. The lives of millions would be protected by a brave few. This is their story. Excuse us, ma'am. From the director of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The most explosive comedy spectacular ever filmed. What the hell do you people think you're doing? Dan Aykroyd. Ned Beatty. John Belushi. Lorraine Gann. Murray Hammond, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson, Toshiro Mifune, Warren Oates, Robert Stack, Treat Williams. I can assure you, there will be no bombs dropped here. Boy, that was fun! Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures present an 18 production of a Steven Spielberg film. 1941. <laughs> Rick Veach and Steve Bissett, they were friends from the Kubert School. They were in the same class and they, they got tight and they did a lot of projects together, specifically for heavy metal. And one of the things they did was a Steven Spielberg movie, probably realizing early on that it was a piece of shit. I mean, I liked it okay when I saw it on cable back in the day, but I don't one? think uh, 1941, the oh, one yeah, with Jim Belushi, Belushi and uh, Dan Aykroyd yeah, and a lot yeah, of yeah. SNL guys. I think some of the SCTV guys too were in that too, weren't they? Maybe? I, anyway. I haven't seen it. Anymore. It's been, yeah, we, again, saw I it on remember, cable. I remember the Ferris wheel rolling down sure. here. Oh, Eddie D 
season. Lucci and the, the fucking um, crazy pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with the little squishy, squeaky doll that he oh, in yeah. his jacket. Mm-hmm. Dan Aykroyd was in that, right? Yeah, I wanted to say he was like, was he in the family that had the the gun, the anti tank, anti plane? Maybe. The, the, no, no, that was Ned Beatty, wasn't it? Ned okay. Beatty was in well, that no, sequence. The scene for, I don't know why in that movie the scene that I remember is the general going to an empty theater to watch Dumbo. Oh, sure. I remember that. Sure. And I remember yeah. that's so fucking weird. But right. Watch well, the whole movie is. That, yeah, the whole movie is fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Can I uh, pause for one second? What the fuck is this podcast about? <laughs> The, it's 1963. Well, right now we're talking about 1941, the prequel to 1963. I think you're talking about the fucking 80s, right? Right. Something. We are talking about the 80s. Hey, you remember the 80s? So anyway, Veach and Bissette were working together on that project, and I think because they figured it was a piece of shit, they just went fucking nuts and just did all kinds of tits and ass and basically turned it into a mad magazine tribute and just went crazy. They adapted the story in broad strokes, but they just kind of went nuts with it. And for me, it was one of the most vulgar things I'd ever seen up to that point. They had you no know, titties and boobies and all that kind of good shit, so that, you know, they're like, you well, never okay. got a copy of Two Hot Girls on a Hot Night. This predates that, actually. Right. No, this would have been like 82, I want to say. Okay. 82, 83, maybe. Oh, heavy metal. Yeah, yeah, heavy metal, right. But again, it was a standalone edition. And so, of course, they went on to work on Swamp Thing. I think it was a situation where Bissette got hired and then Veach did stuff with it. And eventually, Veach was Alan Moore's successor, which uh, at the time, they, he and Alan Moore joked about it being a suicide pact that he was in to, to continue Swamp Thing after Alan Moore had left. He was also kind of a mad genius, and he has a reputation from things like Brad Pack, major deconstructionist. So I would say that if you ran out of Alan Moore stuff, that's when you went to Rick Veach. You didn't necessarily like, you You got guys like Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman where they're like in competition with Alan Moore, where I would say Veach is probably the guy you get when you've like gone through the other guy's shit and you're like, okay, what's like that? But maybe not as, as a big of a breakthrough, not as mainstream a hit. You go to Rick Veach. And of course they'd done a lot of horror stuff. They'd had some collections at Eclipse, uh, which again, referencing comic book resume, I'll, I'll talk about Bedlam fairly soon. So they were known in comics they definitely were prolific in the 1980s. They did a lot of sort of retro EC type stuff as well, but they were never Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, anything yeah. like that. And they were mostly known in the Back American market days. as guys who worked with Alan Moore. So that's where we get to this is these guys had kind of burned their bridges. Rick Veach had also been doing his own independent stuff. Now, Steve Bissett had been working with Alan Moore to help him with Spider Baby Graphics or King Hell, whatever it was. I think King Hell is Rick Veach's company, right? I think and then so, yeah. And then Spider Baby, or no, Mad Love, though, is the one that was fucking me up. King Hell is definitely Rick Veach. Mad Love, I think, is Alan Moore. Anyway, Steve Bissett was helping to get Taboo out. So he was sort of like an unofficial editor for Alan Moore already. And I think what happened, we've 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 talked about stuff like in the past in Shadowhawk, where all the image studios had gotten all these artists to work with them and expand their brands and all this kind of shit. And then when you get to Jim Valentino, it's like, well, you get the choice to work with Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane. He's the seventh guy of seven that you want to work for. And actually, since Will's Portacio, for the most part, wasn't actually hiring people because he never had a studio, but it even he was getting guys like Nick Manabat and getting him into the Wildstorm pipeline. So he, Valentino and Shadowline was sort of like the seventh choice and he was never getting anything like he never got any of the top guys like no big names like he couldn't get Mark Texera because um, Wildstorm gave him a better deal and that's why he went off and did Union. And I don't know this for a fact I'm just assuming if you're Jim Valentino and you're trying to expand your line and you are the fifth hungry hungry hippo on the board you know you got to think outside the box and it's like well Alan Moore's out there right and he's an independent guy so it's like well if I can't get the hot artist why don't I 
try to get the hot rider, or at least the super respected one. But of course, Alan Moore is off in fucking England. The guy doesn't even have a phone more often than not, it seemed like, at some t- points of time. So nobody knew how to get a hold of Alan Moore. First, I called Rick Beach before I called Alan. I said, Rick, I just got this phone call from Larry Martyr. Are you interested in having anything to do with this? And Rick was like, if you can put it together, Steve, and if it looks like it's going to work, let's do it. And then I called Alan. Alan was overworked at this time. Fans and readers have these fantasies about the people that make the comics and write the books and make the movies and TV shows that we love. We all think they're rich and successful. They're not (laughs) in a lot of cases. Alan was in this horrible vice where he was committed to fulfilling and completing these major works from Hell, Lost Girls, his first novel, The Voice of Fire, and yet none of them were bringing in sufficient income because they were all works that he owned or co-owned in the case of Lost Girls and From Hell. He was stretched horribly thin and had a number of family members he was taking care of at the time. We also had a situation where Rick and I were seeing that Tundra was going over under and we would need to do something. So knowing Alan's situation, when I called him to talk to him about he and Rick and I doing something together, Alan said, I just can't take on one more thing. And I said, what if we do it Marvel style? You've worked with Rick and I for years now. What if you just come up with characters and storylines? We pencil them. We fax them to you. You dialogue them. That way you don't have to sit down at a typewriter at any point in time that you don't want to, right? You can call us on the phone, brainstorm the way we we love to anyway. We were all adept at that and had done it together as a threesome even. Let's just do it that way. And that sounded enticing to Alan. He thought that was viable and he knew that Rick and I would do the hard work of you know the penciling and so on he knew our work he knew we could do it excerpts from the April 1993 cover dated inside image issue number two image comics goes back to the future an interview with Alan Moore Rick Veach and Steve Bissett about 1963 Steve Bissett Jim Valentino called me and asked if Alan and I would want to do an issue of Shadowhawk I let Jim know that I didn't think so I hadn't drawn comics for some time much less superheroes and Alan had some grave misgivings about the work he did in the superhero genre feeling responsible, in part, for the current nihilistic turn they've taken since Watchmen, particularly the character of Rorschach. So I told Jim we probably wouldn't do it since Shadowhawk is, after all, a vigilante character, but that I would call Alan. What Alan and I discussed in that first call was a counterproposal to Jim, based on a concept Alan had years prior, which has become the 1963 limited series. We agreed Rick Veach should be on board with the first conversation. Both Dave Gibbons and Don Simpson expressed a strong interest once they'd heard about it, because the idea of it, and what Alan might do with it, was so appealing. Alan Moore. I've never been able to consider working again for DC or Marvel in any capacity since turning my back on them many years ago. I will only work with creative publishers and ones that allow me to own my own work. Although my aesthetics are different from theirs, I admire what the people at Image are doing. They've shaken up the industry in a very brutal way, and I think probably shaken it for the better. But when they approached me through Steve, I didn't know whether I had any interest at all in doing superheroes again. I simply wouldn't do a superhero book again unless there was something in there I could find interesting. Because even though I said money was a consideration, I've never done anything purely for the money. If I couldn't find a way to enjoy the project, then I wouldn't do it. This presented a problem in that after Watchmen and Miracle Man, I had become pretty thoroughly sick of superheroes. I had become particularly sick of the postmodern superheroes that followed in their wake. It seemed to me that postmodern comics were like viewing a distorted mirror of a funfair, where you go in and see these grotesque looking things and you think, my God, that's me. That was a feeling I got reading some of these comics. I could see stylistic elements that had been taken from my own work and used mainly as an excuse for more prurient 
sex, and more graphic violence. Now, everywhere I turn, there are these psychotic vigilantes dealing out death mercilessly, with none of the irony I'd hoped I brought to my characters. So I felt a bit depressed in that it seemed I had unknowingly ushered in a new dark age of comics. There was none of the delight, freshness, and charm that I remembered from the comics of my own youth. It struck me as a terrible shame. Rick Veach. I think the other level that has evolved as we've come into this is the amazing growth in the minds of the audience out there of Image Comics itself. It seems to be a phenomenon that is catching fire with comic readers where they're almost creating this company. They really want it to happen. They're behind it 500%. And here we are with the whole 1963 line, providing Image with a pass that integrally locks into the Image universe of 1993. Steve Bissett. Yes, and that will become more obvious with the 80-page giant annual, which Alan is orchestrating with some of the Image creators, along with the 1963 team. We put together the deal that was 1963 after a series of conversations with Jim Valentino, where Jim Valentino said, right, here's the image deal. And remember, this is when image was only a year old. You guys do the work. There's no money up front, but you get 80% of the back end. Whatever the book earns, you guys get 80%. And you tell us how you want it split up between you. Well, that almost worked. Rick and I were pragmatic enough that we knew, well, we got to get some kind of a page rate, even if it's a nominal page rate. What I did is I was a shareholder in a video superstore in Brattleboro, Vermont, that was called First Run Video. It was the first video superstore in Southern Vermont. Uh, how about if I become your promotional manager and I come into the office on Fridays and I get a week paycheck for that day. And it wasn't much of a paycheck, but it meant there was always going to be a paycheck every week. And then we negotiated with Jim Valentino a nominal page rate so that a little bit of money, and I'm talking about like 50 bucks a page, not much more than that, would be paid for every pencil page and finished script page. So there was a little bit of money coming in for Alan, a little bit of money justifying Rick Beach and I getting together. And Rick went the extra mile. Rick said, okay, Bissette, I know your shitty work habits. <laughs> <laughs> he had a friend who had a cabin that was geographically almost exactly between where I lived and where Rick lived. And we would meet there five days a week and pencil. That would be our work studio. And that's how we got the project done. Alan would phone us up. We would brainstorm stories or Alan would call up with a complete story. We would use fax machines between us. There was no internet at this time to design the characters and so on. And it was a pretty free form process. And out of that, I ended up doing three stories, three characters, the Fury, Endman, and the Hypernaut. And Rick ended up doing much more than that because he was better with deadlines, quicker on the draw. And at a certain point in time, the Fury was supposed to be the first issue, but Alan decided Mystery Incorporated should be first and called me up and said, is it okay if Mystery Incorporated goes first? Now, bear in mind, I knew the minute I said yes, I was losing money because issue number ones always sell better, but I didn't care. Rick and Alan were partners, and if that's how it had to go, that's the way it was going to go. And we also reached out to other people we had either worked with or wanted to work with. We invited Dave Gibbons in, John Toloban, Don Simpson. I reached out to Chester Brown because I love Chester's work, and I met at Chester at a couple of events up in Canada, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to pencil something Chester Browning? The whole concept was Alan's completely. Steve and I didn't have any input on, on the conceptualization of what 1963 was going to be. Our job was more to facilitate Alan's vision. And at first, I don't think we quite understood that it was meant to be deadpan. Um, we thought it was like, oh, it's going to be a little humorous, you know, we're going to make this a little funny, satirical. And he was like, no, I want it completely deadpan. I want it with big dots. I 
want it on pulp paper and I want, we're going to do, the only humor is going to be in the ads. He had this complete vision. He uh, loved uh, uh, Acme Novelty Library and he was seeing a package that was as packed with information and as perfectly designed or attempted to be as perfectly designed as Acme Novelty Library. That was what I remember he said that in the beginning. So Steve and I took that, designed characters based on what Alan was telling us he wanted. And then it was our job to go out and figure out how to do the big dots printing, mm. the old style Silver Age printing, and to get it on pulp paper because all this stuff was in the process of being lost. The American printing industry was moving toward these higher end packages for comics and there weren't any presses anymore that were running that were available to run this kind of stuff, much less create the big dot films that, that they needed. But uh, Jim Valentino put us in touch with uh, the printers and uh, Murphy Anderson. Murphy Anderson is a Silver Age artist who also ran a production company out of Connecticut and they still had the ability to uh, make the big dot color film basically by cutting in ruby lift you know with these teams of people the printer was able to find a press that they were able to rehab and they were able to find the right pulp paper which had the right smell and the right feel because 1963 is a tactile experience as well as a reading experience it's meant to open up the gates of nostalgia to all us old aging baby boomers who had our noses in comics when we were kids and that that was Steve and I we were able to pull all that together solicitation copy from 1963 number one mystery incorporated not to be confused with the scooby-doo gang once upon a time heroes were heroes facing the unknown with dignity and intelligence as well as strength perhaps you remember those glorious days of yesteryear when comics were filled with a genuine sense of mystery and adventure four color fantasies that could take you on breathtaking journeys to fantastic worlds of wonder and imagination with every turn of the page those heroes those days have returned image comics invites you to turn the page to 1963 this all new all vintage superhero series for all ages launches with Mystery Incorporated from Alan Moore, Rick Veach, and Dave Gibbons. Meet Crystal Man, The Planet, Neon Queen, and Kid Dynamo, along with the multifarious Maybe Machine as Mystery Incorporated introduces the 1963 universe with a bang. Now, Mr. Fixit, you read Mystery Incorporated number one. Correct. Or, or it should actually be, it's 1963 book one, but it's pretending like it's Mystery Incorporated. Yeah. Now, yes. well, do you need it? You just read the thing. I thought the Mac was maybe going to flip through to some super short version. What happens? What, who are these? Four. Yes, the Fantastic Four and basically what happens ballpark in the book. I could tell you, dude. It was so yeah. fucking weird. Like, and you just read it last ship. night. Yeah, uh, they're practice fighting the planet head guy, which I thought was the bad guy, and I guess well, he's supposed to be like the thing. Yeah, the planet and, is the thing. And, 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 and then the girl that turns into like the steam or some kind of gas is, I'm, I'm assuming, Invisible Girl. Sure. Um, the guy that shoots like laser beams, I'm assuming, is Johnny. Sure. Uh, is that a fire? A, he's an electricity guy. Yeah, yeah. electricity. There you go. And then um, was the other guy supposed to be Reed Richards? Yeah. Or Reed yeah. Richards Instead of stretching, he becomes Crystal, but he still yeah, does mostly the like same shit. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. 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 Okay. So, and, and then roughly what happens in the story? I mean, if, I mean, it's just like a 1960s. I don't, I don't like that era of comics. Sure. But, but you read it. Yeah. I read, I mean, they're practicing and some guy comes up that I, I'm assuming was supposed to be like, is that the one with Mole Man? Which one is the one with the red brain? Oh, I that's read, not even, that's not even this book. Okay. okay. I, I read several the, the guy that's in this one is the dude that's in all green with the goggles. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, okay. That guy, the great guy. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the villain of the story is a guy who seems to be moving backwards and when the, the gas girl tries to, and her name's not gas girl, I don't remember what it is. It's like, you know, neon chick, I don't know what the well, fuck. They kind of talk down to her. Which is, oh yeah, oh yeah. Which I thought was really strange. They literally try to recreate a Marvel comic book from the yeah. early 60s. So they have like bullpen bulletins and Stan's soapbox, but it's Amiable Al instead. And it's funny because they do this whole thing where they're trying to talk about how progressive Stan is, Al is. They're going to actually have like 
like a character in the background who's colored gray, you know, and if you buy more Marvel comics, then maybe we'll be able to solve prejudice because we're our comics are going to have people with gray skin in it a little bit in the background. Uh, so one of the things they also did is they had a, a letters column, a fake letters column, and a bunch of the kids were writing in telling them to get rid of the chick. You know, she sucks. Get rid of the girl. Why don't you get Inthman in the book? You know, that kind of bullshit. I want like I kind of like the planet guy look. Yeah, the the, the what that big cartoonish head with the yeah. sunken eyes looks kind of cool. Weird eyes, yeah, yeah. very skeletal. Yeah. And see that one was drawn by Rick Veach, right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. And then it was inked by Dave Gibbons. Dave Gibbons' artwork is very apparent there. Like that's an assimilation there with him inking it very clearly. But I do think that the planet is so cartoonish looking that that's probably the most Vichian thing in the story. It's really very Dave Gibbons. Now, Mac, what experience do you have with Dave Gibbons outside of Watchmen? I don't know. You tell me. I'm asking you. No, you tell me. What <laughs> well, would I have seen that Dave Gibbons is from? Uh, I know yeah, the name, yeah. but I don't well, know you, if... Watchmen. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, well, what do you think about the, his art? It's very Silver Agey. Very Silver Agey, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, when we did the Wildstorm episode, you were you felt bad about dogging on Jerry Ordway so much, but you still were basically saying that he's sort of like default, basic kind of comic book artwork. Right? So if, I were, if there was an insight, kids, Google wouldn't encyclopedias. It was a wiki page <laughs> of Silver Agey. If Silver Agey was on Wikipedia, Dave Gibbons would be listed along with Jerry Ordway and Dan Jurgens. Well, wouldn't you say that Jerry Ordway is more Bronze Age, though? Like basic yeah, maybe Bronze he's a Age. More bronze, eh, I don't Ordway? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Depends on where you figure the Bronze Age is. It's yeah. sort of amorphous. Some people extend it all the way to the late in the 80s. I think that's a little excessive that's for Bronze far. Age. Pretty far. But where I agree with you, I think that for a Silver Age artist, Dave Gibbons is a boss. If he'd been drawing like that in 1963, he'd have been like somebody we talked about and champion and stuff. Uh-huh. Drawing like that in the 80s, which is the main place he did it, I feel the way about Dave Gibbons the way you feel about Jerry Ordway. It's like, I don't hate it. It gets the job done. It has some appeal, but I'm never going to be a fan. I'm never going to want to like a sketch by the guy at a convention. I don't care if he ever draws any of my favorite characters. You know, I'm it's not very missionary. Huh? It's missionary. Very missionary. It's not flashy. Yes. Yeah. Nothing With the lights no. out. <laughs> And covers. There you go. Yeah. Now, the one thing I do like, the back cover of that, number one, you'll see that it's shamed by you English. And you read that the whole thing is about a guy telling you how to write better, and he writes terribly. But what I like is in the photograph, you'll notice that his finger is going through the hole of the, the glasses. The, the, Why not just yeah. that? Do you know where you're mailing it to? 1313 Mockingbird Lane. Lane. Yes, the Munsters. Yeah, exactly. As soon as I saw it, I was like, okay, that's cute. Well, that's Alan. One of his things of study is hyperphysics. And that's one of the great things I would learn from him on the phone is he would, he would read these scientific journals, like what quantum how quantum works and how multiple dimensions work and all that kind of stuff and he'd explain it to me so I could understand it and that's what he was he was bringing in to 1963 figuring that Crystal Man being the sort of Reed Richards big brain kind of guy would know this stuff even in 1963 well I grew up on Marvel you know I, I caught it right at the beginning I think my first Marvel comic was Fantastic Four number three and I, I just bought every Marvel after that Jack Kirby is like the guy for me uh, in fact I named my number two son Kirby in honor of Jack it was such a great thing as a kid growing up that every two weeks you go down to the store and there's a new Jack Kirby Marvel comic just full of the most amazing graphics and story ideas and stuff and then all this Marvel stuff in the background you know it was just it was really great one of the most fun projects in terms of creativity that we ever worked on I can remember like getting the faxes in from Dave Gibbons on the inks when he first inked my stuff and it, I was just so knocked out it was like he totally caught it and I remember getting the first printed samples in from the print 
printer, the actual color on the pulp paper. And it was just such a great, great feeling to uh, to know that we were really catching it. You know, we knew we really had it. And then Alan was coming in with the bullpen bulletin pages. That was great too, because after he'd finished writing it, he would call me up and read it to me in this breathless sort of, you know, voice that I, I'd never heard before. But I, once I heard it, I knew that's exactly what Stan Lee was writing, you know, back in the day. And so that was really marvelous. That, that creative part of it was just great, 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 uh, especially in the first two or three months before the business part of it hit. Solicitation copy from 1963, number two, No One Escapes the Fury. Wake up, America. The mysterious Cargo X has arrived at the New York City docks, and only the Fury can save us when he pits his uncanny athletic prowess, flying discs, and mortal wits against the incredible menace it unleashes. In this fabulous first issue, the fearless Fury faces the strange and terrifying villain, the Void, and his destructive floating arsenal of futuristic weaponry. It's cover-to-cover action in the inimitable 1963 style. So you told me you also read 1963 book two, No One Escapes the That's Fury. That's the Spider-Man one, right? Right. Yeah, that was, yeah. I, this was when I finally was like, Frank's fucking with me because there's two <laughs> That's things. That's when it broke you? Yeah, either 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 this book's going to get really fucking weird and cool or he's going to tell me like Alan Moore was smoking like crack or, you know, some weird drug the English do. <laughs> Curiously enough, you're not entirely off on that May I interject real quick? May yeah. I interject real quick? I've never seen these comic books in my life. You've never seen any of this 1963 books? No, man, I don't remember seeing any of this. I stuff. remember seeing the, I remember seeing them on like I remember seeing them. I remember not buying them off the oh, newsstand yeah. or off the off of like by that point we were in the combat shop so, stand. I would never this I wanted to ask you this when I was reading this. The dinosaur with a third eye was that supposed to be Destro? I'm sure there's a Destro like, influence there. Like, it's hard it's to like miss. Shooting like Bentley. Sure. Like like my, I remember reading that thinking, okay, is that like a dino? I was like, I, I'll ask Frank. Frank. Yeah. Know. Well, the thing with that is it's a it's the last dinosaur, and th- it, what he says is he's the reason why the other dinosaurs died. Like this dinosaur was like the apex predator that killed all the other dinosaurs with its because it's the only dinosaur whose brain was proportionate to its skull. Yeah. So instead of having a little tiny pea brain, it was like, but, but yeah, also, but, he, but well. he still has the T-Rex arms and Fury makes fun of him because he can't like reach and he like throws stuff into his eyes and he can't wipe it out because he his, his arms don't reach far enough to get to his hands. Uh, that one's also got the uh, Sky Solo who is the Nick Fury alike, but yeah. it's a chick. Basically, they take the contestant turn her into Nick Fury and Melinda Gebby does pinups in a lot of the books and there's a Stranko style pinup in that one. And then you can see too, this was a, a still inked by Dave Gibbons, but it's a little rougher. You can see that kind of beset style uh, in that one. So you you said you did not enjoy this one though, or this is no, the one that kind of broke I, you. I remember trying to get through it and I was debating whether you were fucking with me or whether there's a legitimate reason or you like trying to punish me like <laughs> because I like Alan Moore. You're like, I just want you to see when, you know, when he's when he's totally shitting the, you know, shitting shit in the bed this is what Alan Moore is doing and then I was thinking no 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 this is gonna be like a joke like Alan Moore just did this like for either a paycheck or just to fuck with somebody mm-hmm. I don't know but after this one it broke me it's two different generations you know Alan and Steve and I are like a certain age and Todd and Jim and Jim those guys are like 10-15 years younger they're really ambitious people but they're ambitious for themselves maybe not Valentino so much because Valentino is our age and I think he kind of uh, you know is more like an, our, our side of the, the ledger on that one but Alan, Steve, and I, and many other people in the 80s stood up against the big publishers, not for personal gain, but to bring the art form to its better potential, because we felt the art form being business. We all knew the stories of Siegel and Schuster and Jack Kirby and all these guys who got you know ripped off by the companies and exploited. And so we all felt a need to change that. And it wasn't just the creators, the retailers, the distributors, and the fans all kind of felt the same way. It was like, we got to fix this. You know, 
know, this is a beautiful American or worldwide art form, and it's kind of being strangled by business practices. So that's the difference. We were we were ambitious for ourselves to a point, but I think we were more ambitious for the art form itself, where the image guys were really about themselves, and that's the split right there. Yeah, Image didn't know what to make of it. Image is a publisher. They didn't know what to make of what we were doing. When I think of the entity that was Image at that time, Jim Valentino got it. I mean, Jim understood. Remember, Jim had done Normal Man. It was an indie guy, and Normal Man was the ultimate crossover comic at the time. Jim did his own version of all the characters from all the comics that he loved, and they all featured it. Normal Man was the one guy who could cross all the parallel universes. So Jim Valentino totally understood what we were doing with 1963. He got it. And it was in his wheelhouse. And it was in his realm of the comics he'd grown up with. The other image guys didn't get it. It's on newsprint? Why are they <laughs> using this shitty coloring process, right? Whereas we had, we had spared no expense in tracking down and working with Murphy Anderson and his son, Murphy Anderson Jr. They did all the production on the color and the color sets. And part of why we worked with Murphy and Murphy is the older Murphy Anderson had drawn those Silver Age DC comics like Hawkman and the Spectre and so on. And the older Murphy would tell us when we turned in Anthony Tolan's color guides, we had a couple of different people who did color guides. Murphy could, could tell us, yeah, they had that color or no, they wouldn't have used that color. They would have used this color, right? It was spot on as close as we could get in 1993 to what a Silver Age comic from 1963 actually looked and felt like. And the only guys that image that got it were, as far as we could tell, were Jim Valentino and Larry Martyr. And when the sales figures came in for the first book, Mystery and Incorporated. For us, it was the most comics we had ever sold in our lives, guys. Like, it was it was amazing. It was like half a million copies of Mystery Incorporated number one. And to the image guys, eh, that's peanuts. Todd and Jim and Rob Liefeld, they were just like, they were looking for a million to two million, you know? So we were like shit on their shoe. There was never an ad for the 1963 line. I remember brainstorming on the phone. Larry Martyr had, was trying to work up an ad campaign and we came up with the idea of photos instead of using the covers having photos of kids with our comic book rolled up in their back pocket riding a Schwinn bicycle from 1963 and Larry had come up with these this great plan for it and it all got deep six because the image guys just why throw good money after bad like these just aren't selling enough solicitation copy from 1963 number three Tales of the Uncanny it's a double header home run special sporting not one but two new heroes First up to the plate is USA, Ultimate Secret Agent. He's a super patriot with the power to stop the insidious red brain. But will he be in time to save the president's life in Double Deal in Dallas? Next in the batter's box is the strangest hero of them all. Beyond humanity lies the Hypernaut. Is he man, machine, or some mysterious melding of the two? Not did you make it to book three, Tales of the Uncanny? I thumbed through. Okay. I did not And see, it, it was a little easier for me because I was, I was struggling too. It was a little easier for me with, with when they... With, with the Fury... Because it's a Spider-Man thing and because he's kind of jokey character, I, I was having an easier time so, with this than a Fantastic Four. So I'm not gonna lie. I never liked Fantastic Four. I read Four. the first two yeah. and immediately jumped to the sixth one just yeah. to see if like where the art style is gonna change, like would there be a different tone? Mm -hmm. So I'm going through the, the sixth one. I'm like, Well, can we no. not can we get to the sixth one? Well, no, 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 no. Okay. But the point of my story was I rarely do that. Right. I did that because I was You thinking, wanted to see what yeah, the four get to the point, Alan. If, if I saw a change in and I didn't read it, I just was thumbing and I'm like, if I see a change in style of art or tone, oh I get it. Like there's a build up and this is the payoff and there was no payoff so I, I went back and i i did one two six four and five and i hated you every moment of it Shh. 
But you have to admit the Fury's costume is pretty rad. I mean, honestly, I won't lie. I did like the art style. Mm -hmm. I do like the Kirby-esque kind of... Well, this one had, was a little more Ditko, I would you say. Think? A little more Ditko. I, I do like that art style. I do not like the writing. I do not like the dialogue. Mm -hmm. I don't like the Chi Willikers powwow type yeah. stuff. I don't like that shit. I don't yeah. want to read it. I'm too old for it now. If I, I, I think you were born too old for that shit. If I was 30... You were always cool. too cynical for that, huh? I think that looks cool. Yeah, so... Tales of the Uncanny? Mac, Tales of the Uncanny. So you just tossed through it. You really don't need to read this. What did you What did you just look at? I looked at Tales of the Uncanny number one. It's an obvious sort of Captain America Kirby-esque style. There's a, uh, instead of the Red Skull, it's the Red Brain. And yeah, like that's whole... the Red Brain. Okay, that was, yeah, yeah that one stood up. Well, and that one was inked by Don Simpson of Megaton Man oh, yeah, and, yeah. and Strange Heroes and stuff. So that, that sort weird, of ridiculous over-rendering, but in a style that's not remotely the image style. More of a, like a Big Daddy Roth now, kind of now, thing. I have a quick question. This whole is going to pay off at the end of this podcast, right? You're going to tell us some fucking weird story. Well, we'll get there. We'll get okay, there. I, I just, I need. There okay, by the way, you, you being a, a fan of uh, Eros, did you ever read Forbidden Frankenstein? Because that was a, that was a Don Simpson did some it, porn. Was that the one that had vampires in it too? P probably. I never read it myself. I remember tossing through it. I just remember a I lot might have of read one issue. I remember a lot of like Simon Bisley level overrenaming of cop in in that book is the main thing I remember about that one. I might have, I might have read or and, and he did one. and he did like meaty women. And I thought that you might have probably appreciate that. I might have because like I said for me my Eros is like two hot girls. On oh sure, a sure. I really like, I figured you'd probably like Young Witches I remember seeing Young Witches I don't they, think I ever they had read those them. really like voluptuous lisp, lips and stuff like, you know yeah. you get way too excited man <laughs> no the Frankest I want that sounds familiar and I, I might have flipped through an issue but I don't remember like collecting them Fantagraphs created a series called Anything Goes and it was just a fundraiser you know you couldn't go on Kickstarter and get a legal defense fund going you just you had to publish something so they, they got a bunch of artists to work for free I wasn't going to get paid pretty sure I had already met Alan Moore by then. I had parodied the Swamp Thing in issue six of Megaton Man. So we had at least met and, and it was friend, you know, friendly and, and respectful and, and all that stuff. Gary Gross sends me this script for Infectopia and it was supposed to be an eight-page story. You saw how dense it is. It's a novel. He's describing the backgrounds, the atmosphere, the psychology of the characters. And then there's like two sentences of dialogue at the bottom. I had never seen anything like it and I've never seen a script like that again. It was, it was eight pages. So the first thing I did was, I can't draw this in eight pages. I, I said to Gary, it's going to be, and it's, it's 13 pages now. He said, well, it's more free work. And the other thing I did was I changed the title. I thought Fictopia was too literary, so I made it Pictopia. It's a story about this little cartoon universe. This was before Roger Rabbit, but this is like a universe. This is like a little small town of cartooning. There's comic book. There's a comic book uh, section of town where the superheroes live. It's in full color, where the animated funny animals live it's a ghetto blondie has resorted to prostitution mandrake the ma magician lives in a cheap walk-up apartment it was this dark allegorical satire about the state of the comic book industry and about cartooning about newspaper cartooning about the corporate takeover of everything these grim and gritty superheroes end up taking over the town and the bulldozers come in and black comedy and apparently this is everybody's favorite or one of their favorite alan moore stories of all time about 1963 I have nothing to do with that project. I was the letterer. I lettered the logo. I lettered half the series. And I explained to you that Rick Veach fired me. <laughs> Way through. 
because they were falling behind on their deadlines, I was lettering the fury. And I lettered the first half of the story on Steve Bissett's pencils. And they sent the second half of the story they sent over to Dave Gibbons to ink. And then I got those pages back that are inked and I had to glue my lettering on them. I got all these uh, pages from Dave Gibbons and then Rick Beach gives me a call. He says, you got the pages, you got to turn them around right away. I said, well, I've got a convention this weekend. Larry Lankford was flying me down to the Dallas Fantasy Fair monthly convention. And I had an airplane ticket. This is already on the schedule and everything. I said, so you're going to have, it's going to be about a week before I get the lettering back to you. My own comic book was coming out. The Savage Dragon Megaton Man was coming out at that moment. That was the first convention that I had done. And Adam West was going to be there. <laughs> and the guys from Tribe were going to be there. You know, Stroman, Johnson and Stroman were there. And I said, I'm going to this convention. So Rick fired me. <laughs> <laughs> Mac, what was going on with that one again? The first one is the Captain America knockoff versus the Red Brain. This is one of the tales of the uncanny. So it's like the old tales of suspense mm -hmm. or tales to astonish or whatever. Or it's a two-hander. Yeah, yeah. So, there, so there's two stories. The second story is uh, with this dude who looks like Armin Zola. He's got a face Yeah, he's, he's definitely he's good guy, Armin Zola. Armin now, Zola. just looking at him, because that's the one thing. You can go one-to-one -one on almost all these characters, but I couldn't quite place who in Marvel that guy would be besides Armin Zola. I mean, he's a little bit cosmic, so maybe a little Silver Surfer, but that's like one of the more original guys despite the fact that he's clearly Arnim Zola though yeah but but it's uh, the second story I don't know who, who, who does this thing he's fighting it's like so, weird, yeah, that, like that was, squid with bones it, it was clever the, the way that it works is that Hypernaut was a test pilot who got blown up but he was rescued at the last minute by aliens who couldn't save his physical body physical life so they basically put him into a robot and that's how he continues to live as a robot and so he's the guy who's clearly very much modeled after No Man from Thunder Agents so that's one place that kind of sounds like Robot from uh, Doom Patrol. Oh, oh, Robot Man. Robot Man, yeah. Yeah, a little of that too, but I, but I think, because No Man was kind of a contemporary. I think he's going to be a little bit later, but I don't think he was inspired by either. And and his whole shtick of going to different bodies and stuff is, is very specific to No Man. He has an awareness of altered consciousness, and so he gets tossed through a painting that's in two, like a, it looks like it's a painting, but it's actually a dimension that exists in two-dimensional space. And it makes him realize that the person that he's fighting, the reason why he's unable to do anything to this guy, is he lives in fourth dimensional space and so he's unable to perceive the being fully because they're, they're, there's the whole other dimension of this creature that he can't perceive as a three dimensional entity and that's what he ultimately uses to defeat it. One thing that is clever with this is Alan Moore is a little bit more scientifically educated than Stanley ever was so there's not a lot of yeah I was around nuclear waste and that gave me my superpowers and stuff. He actually tries to bring some real scientific stuff to it and that was a clever little bit with uh, more of a sci-fi than the fantasy stuff that Stanley did. Uh, you'll also notice the art style and that's a little different too. Uh, that one is inked by Chester Brown, uh, better known for a lot of uh, independent stuff like Yummy Fur. Paying Forward is a more recent graphic novel that got a lot of attention that he did, but definitely a different art style too that has a sort of a more delicate line and so it stands apart from a lot of the other 1963 stuff while still being of a piece with it. Anyway, I thought, I thought it looked really, I thought both stories looked pretty cool. I wouldn't mind. Yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed them more because they were a little shorter and so you got to the clever bits quicker and changed things up so I, I appreciated that. Every issue we watched it with the sales every single issue lost a hundred thousand in sales it was the most i ever earned in my life all my life combined we shared equal partners with everybody that was part of the book so being able to cut a check to chester brown that was more than he'd ever seen for his inking you know the hypernaut story was very gratifying well they're all our friends and yeah. we wanted to take care of them all we, we, we saw that we were going to make some money and we wanted to bring our friends into because we knew that if they had capital they 
they would do what they really wanted to do, the kind of comics they really wanted to do. And that would be good for our art form. Excerpt from Hero Premiere Edition number six, Horus Lord of Light, a snazzy talk with Roar and Rick from 1963. Rick Veach. When our first issues were solicited, we got tremendous orders because of the image name. But once the books started to come out, they didn't click with the typical 10 to 12 year old image audience. But at conventions, people in their late 20s and much older come up to us all starry eyed and just say thank you. To me, that's great. It would be nice to continuously sell big numbers. It would be nice to sell to the kids who read the other books. But we have been successful doing a series we are very proud of, and it would be hard to ask for much more than that. From the same Hero Premiere Edition, going back in time to 1963 with Sturdy Steve. Steve Bissett, I avoided superheroes for the first 17 years of my career. I basically did this to get Alan Moore back to the audience who raved about him on books like Watchmen and V for Vendetta. He had a tremendous following on those titles. His more recent work has been just as good, but it doesn't appeal to as big a fan following as his former successes. Of the three of us, I went into it thinking of it as a one-trick pony. Alan and Rick were looking forward to 1964, 1965, and beyond. The thought of that spelled mediocrity to me. But now that we've done the majority of the work, I am parental about a couple of the characters, namely the Fury and Inman. But this project was a detour for me. A profitable one, but nonetheless a detour. This is not my first love, but I'm glad we did it. I'm at work on a series I began before 1963 came up. It's called Tyrant. It's the birth, life, and death of a T-Rex. I want to write more nonfiction. I currently have a traveling slideshow that I want to turn into a book. It's called Journey into Fear. It's a history of horror comics. So you didn't make it this far, so let's let Mac look through Tales from Beyond now. And this is another one where they definitely do a tweak, because I figure this is a cross between Tales to Astonish and Strange Tales, because they, they do have a name more in here named King Zero, but he is only referenced very briefly in the sixth issue. So instead of pairing up two of the guys who are like sort of savage, me against the world kind of stuff, they took their Doctor Strange analog and coupled him with their Hulk analog. So you got a little yeah, bit more of a contrast. Of, and you could kind of see the Hulk influence in the face. Oh, very Even, much. I, honestly, I got a Hellboy kind of vibe off of too. Sure, I can see it, especially with the, the pronounced the arms. arms the kind of the, he's, he's sort of a lobster-esque. Yes. So uh, I remember, yeah, yeah I, flipped, I flipped through that one. And you Dark see, he's, he's dropped into a nuclear irradiated zone with all sorts of mutations. And he's fighting a guy called Comrade Cockroach, who is a Russian spy. There's a lot of anti-commie stuff running through the 1963 books. I think a lot of it is Alan Moore making fun of Red Scare, like it was Satanic Panic, where it's like he, I think, probably has some socialistic, communistic leanings. Well, the, and so yeah, I think he's thing. making fun of the like big time red well, baiting. They, they do some kind of like commercial or uh, the cardboard Frankenstein they replace him with a Stalin, if I recall correctly. Something like that. Yeah, I yeah. remember flipping through one. Like, yeah, I remember thinking like it would have been a cool t shirt. Yeah, because that was one of the things that Alan Moore stipulated is that the stories would be played completely straight, but they could get goofy with the ads. So the ads are much more reminiscent of Mad Magazine or Crack, where they're clearly a parody of the type of advertisements that were in those comic books in the time period. So, Mac, what did you think about that one? Uh, it doesn't look as interesting as the uh, Tales of the Uncanny. I definitely agree. Now, the story for Johnny Although, Beyond... I was going to say, the Johnny Beyond looks... Okay, I'll, I'll give Johnny Beyond... Johnny Beyond is definitely the one of the two that appealed to me more. It's like Jim, Jim Valentino drew that, right? Yes. Uh, Although he was inked by somebody who went kind of nuts. I think Steve, Steve Bissett does the inking this time. And Valentino's never combo. looked as rough... Yeah, he's never looked as rough as that. And they definitely were able to get some Ditko stuff in the mix there. And that's one where things are getting timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. So where, is, is he like... Is this like a Doctor Strange knock? Exactly. Or something like that? But yeah. they write him like a Bob Haney beatnik style. And then there's a, a lady from 1993 who speaks in lots of like feminist literature kind of, you know, tech jargon. And so he's talking weird. She's talking weird. They're going to an apartment at one point and it's 1963. They're going to an apartment at another point. It's 1993. He gets into a fight with the 1993 version of himself. All kinds of wacky shit. And he ends up getting lost in another dimension by the end of that story. Where the in 
Man is a much more straight out Hulk lift, essentially. And this one's inked by John Toliban of Swamp Thing fame, but really you don't see the Toliban in this. It just looks like he faithfully reproduced what Steve Bissett would have been drawing, maybe tightened it up a little bit, cleaned it up a little bit, but mostly the same kind of stuff. Fights his Monster of the Month, who he's fought many times in the past. But I want to make sure I mention Comrade Cockroach because he's going to come up again. At Marvel, they were doing like Spider-Man number one and X-Men number one yeah, and selling like six and seven million copies. And it was this huge speculator market that people were buying and selling these boxes of books thinking they were going to be worth money, ignoring the fact that there were so many millions of them printed, they really weren't going to be worth money. And that yeah. all, just, just in April of 1993, when Mystery Incorporated was released, that's when the bubble burst. The whole thing came down. <laughs> But then we started hitting speed bumps. Like Rick and I were doing all the editing, but we weren't paying ourselves for editors. Like we didn't take a share as editors. We just earned the same as everybody else based on how many pages we had done in that issue. And this wasn't greed kicking in. This became problematic when we weren't paying ourselves for the pinups and the issues that we'd drawn, but somebody who had drawn a pinup was expecting that fat check. And so things did get fraught on that end of things, but everybody earned very, very well off of that. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was amazing to be someone who had worked in comics by that time for over 15 years. And we're seeing this kind of payday, but we're hearing on the phone, it's not enough. We said, we'll be the editors and the production people here. We'll make sure this thing happens. But we didn't take any extra money for it. We just uh, divided the profits up among the freelancers. Whoever worked on it got the exact same percentage. And Steve and I just sort of donated our time doing the production end of it. This was a huge mistake because the production end of it was so complicated and the learning curve was so steep that Steve and I were just in this unbelievable pressure to get this thing produced and done and out on time. The way it worked is you would solicit a book and you would get a bunch of orders in and if you didn't ship the book on time it would have to be resolicited and those orders could go down. So if if our books had run late, our orders would have disappeared. So we were desperate to get the books out on time. The one thing I'm really proud of is that every all six issues were released on time. I think it's the only image comic ever that did that. And I kind of feel bad for the retailers who were probably stuck with boxes and boxes of books. But again, we didn't quite understand the ramifications of it. Like what was happening to the people on the other end of it? You know, we were just trying to make a success of what we were doing. Solicitation copy from 1963, number five, Horus, Lord of Light. It's magic and mythology all the way as Horus, Lord of Light, faces the greatest challenge of his immortal life with only 12 hours to dawn. All our hawk-helmeted hero has to do is pilot Ra, King of the Gods, through the legendary 12 hours of night. With only a mere mortal for company. Sounds easy? Not if the sister set and his animalistic ally Anubis have any say in the matter. Be here for a mythical milestone of mind-boggling magnificence, all delivered in the Surefire 63 style. So here's another one for you, Matt. Now, like you, I was trying to read everything, especially in the first issue or two. I read the letters column. I read it was a lot of fucking text. I'm, I was gonna ask you, were these like, you know, those old giant, you know, what is 40-page giant type books? Because it felt like I remember reading and then there'd be like some little joke in the middle, some kind of little goof stuff and it'd be like a whole other story. I'm like, it, it just, it was a lot. I mean, yeah, it, it was a lot. I appreciate that, mm -hmm. but. Well, and especially from something like Watchmen, you're expecting something like Under the Hood where you're going to be getting all kinds of additional information that you didn't know and there's a little bit of that but not really that much and it turns out I, later on I was watching an interview, Bissette and Veach were the ones who were doing that stuff. So you were not getting the full Alamore treatment with the, the letters pages and the text features and I lost interest in those very quickly as a result of that. Yeah. Plus, they were writing it in the voice of Amiable Al, who is, of course, the Sandman Lee lift. And I just couldn't take it after a couple of issues. I 
just stopped. I couldn't handle it anymore. Oh, by the way, I know for a fact that one of those ash cans that were in the, the fan speculation magazines was a Horus Lord of Light. I think I still have one from when I rebought it a few years ago for the, the, that particular magazine. So Horus Lord of Light, it's like a Thor knockoff, but he's Egyptian. Yep. I don't know. I thought it looked interesting. It's a little weird how white the Egyptian guy is though, right? Yeah. I would say actually the art style isn't as Kirby as I would like, but it's cool. Like it looks like it's all these other Egyptian gods and, and stuff. I, you know, look, I'd give it a read probably. Yeah, it's all right. This was the one that started to break me because what ended up happening is I knew we were going to talk about 1963 as soon as possible. And I figured, well, we probably end up doing it this weekend. So I, I, I read through the night most of these issues, but I didn't read them all at once. I'd read a little bit, get tired, go to sleep, wake up, read a little bit more. And Horace was definitely one of the ones that put me to sleep. And when I picked it back up again after I dozed off midway through the story. So it's an it's an accurate representation of Thor. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah that the, the I mean, dialogue really is very it. stiff. They yeah, really exactly. I struggle with that one the most of all the issues. It's okay, but it's like kind of like fix it over there. It's like, can we get to the point already? And so Alan Moore had a very clear vision for what he wanted to do here. And he's obviously doing an extremely faithful take on the Marvel bullpen. Uh, he is oh, getting he's, he's getting some shots in with like the they're, they're the sweatshop, the 63 sweatshop and stuff. But overall, just being a recreation more than anything else. Uh, not a, uh, what do you call it? A, Deconstruction. Uh, well, no, he's not. Or giving, satire. He's not, okay, so it's not satire? Nope, nope. So it's not a, a homage or anything? Homage would be correct, I think. Would be homage in the truest sense of okay. trying to faithfully recreate Recreate. the stuff. Okay, so so because so, I, when I was reading this, I remember finding like old comic books and it felt like those old comic books. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. That, that was always the plan. In interviews, they talk about how it was a very tactile experience, that it's supposed to look and feel like the old comics. And that was something that Moore insisted upon. Here's the problem. While insisting upon all this production shit, Alan Moore had nothing to do with actually getting it done. Steve Bissett had already been struggling to get stuff done on the Spider-Baby graphics materials and got kind of getting the dumped editorial duties and production duties and the same thing happens here. Now these comics are coming out at a time when the publishers are transitioning away from anything resembling the old publishing model and in fact I remember in the uh, around 1990 or 91 or so DC celebrated the end of their relationship with their long term printer by putting out uh, I don't know if they were called Millennium issues. I think they were called Silver Age Greats and basically knowing that that particular printer was going to stop producing DC comics after a bunch of years they did a bunch of reprints in this same sort of format and then that was the end of that printer essentially. I don't, I don't even know if the printer survived but they definitely didn't print of that fashion anymore. And since there was a greater demand for higher quality magazines and higher quality comic books, essentially the demand for new strips, newsstand paper, newsprint, uh, any of this shit was out the window. Nobody wanted this shit anymore. And so they'd already abandoned it by 1993. The bigger learning curve though was working with Image. They were kind of in disarray. All those guys had had made a huge pile of money and they were going off and starting studios and buying homes and buying cars and talking to Hollywood. And, you know, they, they call it the toad syndrome, take off and die. <laughs> so they were kind of hard to deal with. Jim was great. I got to say, Jim was the best thing that happened to us in this whole thing. Valentino, yeah. He uh, had a uh, an assistant coordinator, Randy, I can't remember his last name, and he was fantastic. But we weren't used to having to do our own marketing, solicitation, and production, Steve and I. So we were constantly being hit with, hey, we got to have this by tomorrow. We got to have this by tomorrow. We got to have this by the next day. And it was like every day there'd be something that Image needed from us. And we were in this constant, on this constant treadmill of learning how to do it, getting it done, and then getting it to them. This put incredible pressure on Steve and I. We just, we were like pulling all-nighters, you know, just all the time. It was crazy. At the same time, Alan, uncharacteristically, was harder and harder to get a hold of. Like, usually we could call him up and get a hold of him. He's there and we could solve problems if we had questions and stuff like that. But he wasn't around and he would like disappear for a week, two weeks at a time. And then we, when we did get a hold of him, we'd have this laundry list of stuff we needed. So that got, that created tension among us. 
as well. And the other problem was Image didn't want us or 1963. Image wanted Alan Moore. And what happened was as soon as Jim Valentino got the 1963 project up and going, all the other partners called Alan and pulled him in to work on their books. So we lost Alan's time and energy as that got poured into Spawn books with Todd, you know, Supreme with Rob and what have you. It was kind of eerie because it was a variation on what I had seen happen at Tundra when the powers that be at Tundra looked at Taboo and went, oh, you know, people look like Taboo, but they love From Hell. How about if we print From Hell as its own book? And what they were doing was killing Taboo. You take the prime serial out of Taboo and you're killing the anthology that is serializing it. That's what was happening in a different way with Image. They got the book they wanted, 1963, Alan Moore working with two of his buddies, and then we bring in the other buddies, Dave Gibbons, John Toddleben, Don Simpson, but the Image partners want Alan working with them on their books, and that meant that as we got each issue of 63 done, it was getting harder and harder and harder to get the Image partners and our own partner to stay engaged with finishing the project. We had a finish line. Let's just get to that finish line and we couldn't get to that finish line can't blame alan but it was one of the things pulling at him and the other thing and i've seen this enough times in comics you've got a hungry creator working on a project out of love and because they need the income and when another check comes in from another project bingo their attention goes there we weren't looking to compete with todd mcfarland but that's what ended up happening once the payday came in on those todd mcfarland spawn issues with alan writing one that, that todd drew and then dave sim and frank miller those were bigger payday checks than any of those individuals had ever seen in comics in their lives. I wasn't bothered by it. I thought if Alan can get an offer to draw an issue of Spawn and make half a million bucks, God bless him. And I knew him well enough and know him well enough to know that he wouldn't let us down. He would finish the project with us as as described. He wouldn't just let it dangle. Steve had been working with Alan for a couple of years on From Hell and Taboo. And so I think there was some tension there. You know, Steve trying to edit and organize Alan to get scripts to Eddie to finish From Hell so that that could be in taboo that was a that was a tension thing so you know steve kind of i think was bringing some of that baggage to it but he was pretty unhappy with it and i i think in a later interview he saw it as abandonment of us i don't see that at all it was just he had an opportunity to bang out a script and make a bunch of money i would have done it and meanwhile in this time period alan moore was getting into magic like more richly and it started using psychotropics and like the gathering A little early for Magic the Gathering, actually. Just a little bit. We didn't know it at the time. Later, he shared with me that he had been going through kind of personal crisis that he couldn't share with us at the time. I don't know if I can really discuss it. You know, he shared with me what was going on. I would say that I read an interview with him uh, not long ago where he talked about that time when he was first getting into magic Mm -hmm. and he was exploring magic uh, using psychedelics and that he had a mini nervous breakdown. I think that's the way he described it. I think he he was in turmoil, but he was... He wasn't able to tell us. So we just didn't know what was going on. You know, the way it turned out, we ended up with six issues that were just what we were picturing. But at a certain point in time, there was a reliance on a second image partner, Jim Lee. And Jim Lee had seized control of the annual. It was supposed to be six issues concluding with a uh, giant annual in the form of the old Silver Age Batman, Superman, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane annuals. So there were six issues of 1963. I was on the panel when this was announced. Here's what happened. We're at the image panel. Jim Valentino says to me, he says, uh, go find 
Rick and Steve. I want to announce this on the panel. I'm an errand boy for Jim Valentino. I go running down to the dealer's room. I find Rick Veach and Steve Bissett. I say, hey, they want you at the image panel. We were down on the floor and Don Simpson came down and said, hey, you got to come up here. The image guys want to talk to you, you know? So we followed him up to the big, biggest hall. You know, it holds like 5,000 people and it's full of image fans. The image guys are holding court up there. Todd McFarlane, you know, he's got the mic and he's doing his thing on stage. And the pitch was that they wanted to announce on stage that moment, but that we had to agree to Jim Lee taking over the annual, which would have been the ultimate ending of 1963. And they announced, okay, uh, you know, Alan Moore's coming back to comics and 1963's got him. Immediately, Jim Lee spontaneously said he was going to draw the annual. And like, everybody's like, well, uh, uh, okay, we'll work out the details later. I don't think Jim Lee ever had any intention of drawing anything. That's just a guess on my part. We were kind of stuck because we couldn't get a hold of Alan from, from San Diego. There was no way to say. It, it, we had to make that decision ourselves. And I think I was more open to it than Steve was. But ultimately, Jim came down. Jim Valentino came down. We talked it all out. Jim Lee said he w- really wanted to do this and that he would. I'm not sure if he could have stopped the project. I don't know if it had to have his vote to even happen. That, that's something that's a good question for Valentino. But we we agreed to it. And they announced it. They brought us up on stage. Todd and Rob and these guys were like throwing hats and stuff down to the crowd. The crowd surged the stage. The security guards grabbed us and pulled us away from the crowd and out the back door as the whole place went crazy. We went crazy because Alan Moore was going to be working with Image, but okay. also because of the general craziness of the whole Image thing. People were just rabid for it. And so as as they were throwing these this merch out to the fans, the fans rushed the stage. We had to be pulled out by security. It was like being a rock star or something. Jim Lee seized control of that with Rick's and my and Alan's permission early on. It was this whole crazy scene at the San Diego Con in 1992. And we didn't realize till after the fact that it had nothing to do with us. It just had to do with the pissing contests that were going on between the individual players at Image. Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Jim Valentino. Yeah, I can't say they were friendly to us. And they're very, especially Todd and Jim and Rob are very upfront about they want they want the, to be the bell of the ball. They want to be the number one. They're pushing, that's, you know, they want to be stars. Where Steve and I and Alan, I don't think that was our goal. My perception, I'm not saying this is what happened, but my perception is Jim Lee wanted to show up, Jim Valentino, at the announcement at that San Diego Con. Because when Jim Valentino got up and announced that he was working on a brand new project with Alan Moore and Rick Veach and Steve Bissett and Rick and Steve are in the audience and this image crowd goes nuts and Jim Lee grabbed the microphone and said, and I'm doing the annual after this bizarre day of phone calls to Alan and Rick and I on the floor of the convention and Alan in England as Jim Lee's jockeying to take over the annual and then he didn't do anything. He never did a single thing and in fact he declared he was taking a sabbatical right at the time we needed him and the whole thing kind of like fell apart at the end and in a nutshell that was happened that's what happened that's my perception of what happened anyway i was the first of the partners as this was falling apart it was getting harder and harder to get alan on the phone he was having his own trials and tribulations in england that i was not aware of at the time because no one said anything to me about it including alan we couldn't get jim lee to respond to anything i still have the one fax he sent us with this beautiful drawing of one of the characters from mystery incorporated and then nothing we could not get him or anyone in his studio on the phone. A lot of people think that Jim Lee basically stole Jim Valentino's thunder and made it seem like this was going to be a Wildstorm project. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about it, and Bissett specifically helped start this talk, about how super competitive the various houses were at Image. And so they were almost like pitted against one another. 
And so this was the coup that Jim Valentino put together. Jim Lee's taking some of that thunder. But then before that happens, Todd McFarlane contacts Alan Moore about writing an issue of Spawn. And so ultimately, he's the first guy who has a book published about, you know, with an Alan Moore script. So how, wait, 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 wait. Game a of hard, shit going I'm right. having a hard time contextualizing. When did this come out in relation to like, well, what issue of Spawn was that, 12 or something? No, that was eight. Eight, okay. Yeah. What? So let's say Spawn came out, say, let's say June or July of the year, right? I think so. Uh, he's he's the obviously the Alan Moore issue has already come out before the first issue of 1963. So these issues are coming out probably in the teens of Spawn. What? Yeah. Oh, that's like a whole other context that I I just didn't. Right. You thought this was way down the line. I thought this right? was like 1997. Right. I mean, I know I know we've said well, it's the, literally the I reason know we've why 93 over and over yeah. again. This is the 30th anniversary. Yeah. I, but I, I I can't. My brain does not compute that this came out at the same time as like Young Blood was mm-hmm. in its infancy. Spawn was in its infancy. Savage Dragon, and then this stuff, right, is contemporaneous to all that. This is going on the shelf next to Brigade. It's this versus Pit. But weren't they also at the same I, time doing like the Max? And uh, the Max I don't, I'm not. Know? I'm not actually sure if the Max okay. has started yet. I'm not sure. He's probably still doing uh, Marvel Comics Presents. Possibly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's this is real early on. It just uh, seems like I. It, it, I mean, well, because there's so much of this. This is this weirdly like stuff? also now ahead of its time. Because yeah. I don't think that he, he would. Why? Why were we parroting 60s era Marvel in the early 1990s? Right. Because again, it's literally the 30th anniversary. It's almost like a Back to the Future kind of deal where the times in the early 60s were so different from the times in the, the early 90s that you're doing a, like a Marty McFly compare and contrast kind of thing with yeah. it. Yeah. Because okay, they're still different weird. enough. Yeah. Alan Moore made, from what I understand, half a million dollars in royalties off of that Spawn comic book. And Spawn comic book. <laughs> you just see Max's face here. A half a million Half dollars. a million dollars. In like 1993 money. Now, yeah. Well, 92, I think. Yeah. But like, so you're talking about a guy who like, that's probably more money than he had to run the company that he tried to start up. Right. And he just, then that's just a paycheck for one comic book. Which also led to Spawn and the Hells thing. Sure. Sure. Blood Wildcats Feud and, and Wildcats and yeah. all that kind of shit. Oh, yeah. They brought him back a few times. Yeah. They went back to that well. And so because they have that competition and because all of a sudden for the first time ever, they can't get a hold of Alan Moore. It's Steve Bissett thinks that Moore's gone nuts with the money. He's been like corrupted by the money and they're all a bunch of hippie radicals and stuff like literally there's this great interview an hour-long interview just about 1963 for the most part with rick veach uh, the, the channel is called the comic cube and at the beginning of the channel uh, or the beginning of the interview uh rick veach stops everything and says listen uh this is the week that, you know I, I live in vermont this is the week that we harvest our weed it's legal here and so while i'm doing the interview if you don't mind i'm actually gonna be doing clippings off of my plants because now this is the week in which we harvest and so i want to work on this stuff so big time hippie guys very much and all three of them are like this where they they are going into this very altruistic they're wanting to do good things for the industry they care about the industry as a whole they're not into all this fucking competition and bullshit and these guys are middle-aged too and they're doing this stuff out of the love of their hearts but to be honest with you these books weren't popular you know the the, the kids i didn't want this shit you didn't want this shit you didn't even know this shit existed right and so what happens all the production weight is on these guys and the industry starts collapsing this is 1993 right this is where the bubble's bursting and Bissett just basically has a, a break himself his own self and he sends a fax to Veach and Moore saying, I quit. I'm done. Bye. I contacted Rick and Alan and I said, look, I'll pencil my part of the annual, but I can't edit or co-edit a project.
Act where I can't get the two principal players, Jim Lee and Alan Moore, to talk. Alan actually scripted the beginning of the annual. There were a number of pages scripted. Not a majority of pages, but there were 10 or 15 pages of script that we did have. We just couldn't get anyone to move. The best analogy I can give you is what Larry Martyr said to me at the time, because I was heartbroken at it. Rick took it really hard, and I can't blame him. He felt like I was, you know, bailing out of the project. And Larry called up, Larry Martyr called up and said, Steve, you know what? You and Rick are the tugboats. You're trying to pull these cruisers, these cruise ships into the harbor. And what can you do? And there was nothing we could do or I could do. And that's why there was no annual. That's why we never completed it, unfortunately. What happened was Steve and I were under unbelievable pressure to get these books out on time. And we were doing it. But like I say, every day was just an incredible struggle. And Steve cracked first. I was just finishing putting the production for book five together, Horace. And out of the blue, Steve sent us a fax, basically resigning from the project. And I'd been talking to him every day. And, it, it, you know, I had no idea this was coming at me. Uh, Alan didn't either. Remember, we got on the phone afterwards and we just couldn't understand like what, we, what he was doing. Tried to get a hold of him. He wouldn't pick up phone. I probably should have tried harder. I should have driven over to his house and tried to talk sense to him. But I was exhausted and I was kind of mad at him because he had dumped the last book in my lap. We had been taking turns running the production and he was supposed to be production guy on the, on the sixth book. And by walking away, that meant there was only one person left to do it. So that was a pretty crazy month, I'll tell you. Solicitation copy from 1963, number six, The Tomorrow Syndicate. $1.95, color, Alan Moore, Rick Veach. Everybody knows The Tomorrow Syndicate, USA, The Hypernaut, Inframan, Infragirl, Horus, and The Inman, plus The Fury, are the greatest heroes of all time. And now they must go through time and space itself to rescue Mystery Incorporated. Both you guys at least have flipped through this one. Tell me a little bit about Tomorrow Syndicate. This is the last book, book six, uh, but leading into the big double image finale. It's the Avengers, so all the characters they've been yeah. setting up this whole time are, it even says on the cover, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which I don't know how they fuck they got away with that, but uh, <laughs> it is very small on the cover, but... Uh, well, it's funny because there's a later book I've got here called Big Bang versus 1963. It is the 35th issue. It's not super relevant because this is actually a reprint, but there's a point made where he says, no, we're, like, at one point there's a kid who says, you're Earth's greatest heroes. And it's like, no, we're Earth's mightiest heroes. You know, it's, it's actually a line in the book, but carry on. I'd agree. It's the, it's the how They're based all in the... Mount Rushmore. They've got a secret base yeah. and they do a cutaway. That was really like, weird too, like where you can see like they're all in the different heads and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah. So Mac, you're being an Avengers guy. Uh, what do you make of this last issue? I mean, I didn't read it, bro. Just, right, right, I flipped right. through it. There's, it's, just, uh, it's just a bunch of the, Avengers The shit, people right? from the other issues I saw are in this issue. <laughs> right. But this time they're all in it at the same time. Right, right. That's exactly good. At the end, Dave Gibbons would just save the day with uh, Tomorrow Syndicate because it was running so late and by then Steve had left the project and he inked it and lettered it in record time <laughs> and we really? just got it in on the wire. Just, you know, thank you, Dave Gibbons, wherever you are. And so what's weird about this one too is it's got the Avengers but the story is super Justice League rather than Avengers because for what they've been tracing these anomalies in the Fury story the Spider-Man story he found these weapons they look like Liefeldian weapons from the 90s and they emit a strange radiation and they have the knockoff uh, Wasp and Ant-Man who trace that energy to two different locations and one of them leads them to the Miracle Mile which is the underground base of the Mystery Incorporated Fantastic Four and so they're trying to follow their trail to see where they where they got to whether they've disappeared because they were trying to find their fourth member who got captured by the guy in the green outfit with the bows and arrows who had stolen the electric guy trapped him in this cube and run off with him uh, there was a cute little thing in that first issue where basically the guy wasn't walking backwards what had happened is he was going through time and by he was it was sort of like the way light works where we're seeing the reverse images of the guy as he's 
continuing to pass through time, but he eventually goes forward through time and takes the electricity guy with him through this portal. And so they're following him. They end up in this place that's like the antechamber to this gallery of dimensions. And they run into like the golden age versions of several of the characters and yada yada. Jim Valentino penciled the uh, golden age 63 characters. And I inked this. I did the I did the lettering on a font. There's a lot of stuff that you would see in other books later on where you've got all this parallel universe shit. And they at one point they go through a universe where it's basically the mirror mirror where it's the evil versions of themselves that they get into a fight with and shit. And then finally there's a big two page spread where they're going to a place called the uh, Alternity. And they're essentially passing through the true multiverse where it's a bunch of black and white images featuring like Cerebus, Violent Marv. Flaming Carrot, right? Is mm-hmm. that who that is? Yeah. Mr. Monster. Max Immortal. That is the strange heroes of Don Simpson, Mega, Mega, Megaton Man. That is Martha Washington from Give Me Liberty. Oh yeah, that's that's uh, G- uh, Jim. Got it. Uh, that's Tyrant, which is the book that Steve Bessett was probably quitting to work on. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's basically showing that all these independent comic books are part of this alternaverse and they are all potentially accessible within the image comics. Also at one point in that little antechamber place, that lobby waiting to get to different parts of the universe because they have they're talking about how there's an infinite crisis going on and you can't get to Earth 1 or Earth Alpha or whatever the hell they're calling it and you see Superman standing in line like out of something out of Beetlejuice uh, holding his death certificate because he would have been still dead around this time period and so they finally get to the end and all of a sudden the coloring shifts and they're being done with computer coloring the coloring starts to change too it goes from the big dot to all of a sudden this airbrushed coloring and that's what he was planning manual where the big dot characters land in image New York and uh, so you get a taste of where that was going they're at a place that's overly rendered and dirty and rough and mean looking and it's revealed at the very end that the guy who captured the dude from Mystery Incorporated is in fact Shaft from Youngblood although if you read the dialogue he has supervillain dialogue so I think that the whole point was he's not really Shaft and the tell is in the dialogue and you know now things are really going to get interesting and you see all these screens on the background of the, of Shaft who's been super over rendered and has like ridiculous musculature and stuff you're seeing Spawn and Shadowhawk and all these other guys Savage Dragon yeah all the Wildcats notably it's mentioned too that at the time of this book they still hadn't set up the rights like they hadn't worked everything out with all the image guys to have their, their characters so specifically you don't see anything from Will Portacio because I'm not sure if Wetworks has come out yet by this point mm-hmm. and you don't have anybody from Cyroforce so apparently Mark Silvestri never signed on for this shit and then the book never comes out so he continued to do Wildcats until the teens and then he left and did another sabbatical and he wouldn't come back again until Heroes Reborn so never in this time frame do you have a 1963 the double image 80 page giant annual here the first 11 pages 11 pages of comics you know he, he starts out with this in- incredibly dense description of the uh, Mystery Incorporated dropping out of hyperspace into modern image New York that uh, I could it's it's like two pages for the first panel but he also says to Jim along the way he says in, uh, um, let's see on the other hand since you're the artist and thus have a better visual imagination than I do please feel free to substitute something better if there's any scene which doesn't work for you visually he essentially says that to the every artist he works with I'm going kind of going crazy here but do whatever you want as long as it works you know but it's just the way he thinks he sits down at the at the typewriter and in a first draft the whole thing comes out and he's just you know super speed knocking his stuff out it's really quite extraordinary a lot of people are looking to blame someone for it but it's it's a bigger situation you know part of it is the nature of the business which was falling apart at the time and they'd gone from selling you know six million copies of spider-man to selling fifty thousand in the course of you know six months the whole industry was coming down so it didn't make a lot of sense to throw a lot of effort into putting out comics until you know the the air had cleared and we figured out where the business really was the biggest problem i think is the 
partnership of Rick, Steve, and Alan. I think if we'd been able to hold our partnership together as friends, then we would have come up with a solution and we would have had the annual of some sort. And I bet you we would have also had more 63 comics following it, but we couldn't hold it together, the three of us. And so if there's blame, it's for the, it's, it's Rick, Alan, and Steve who, who just weren't able to hold their thing together. You know, the, the script I have here is dated December of 1993. So the last issue of 63 shipped in September. So Jim Lee didn't see the script until December. Wow. So by then, he'd probably lost interest. I think this is another thing that I think is our fault. Steve and I thought Jim Valentino was dealing with Jim Lee. Jim Valentino thought Steve and I were dealing with Jim Lee. So Jim Lee didn't hear from us all during this. Other than the comics were coming out, but we didn't, we weren't in touch with him calling him up and telling him how things were going and making sure he was on board because we thought Valentino was doing it. Valentino thought we were doing it. By the time the script comes out, he had decided to take a sabbatical from doing comics. But again, I think if Steve and Alan and Rick had their shit together, we would have gotten that annual done somehow and finished the project off because that's the type of people we were. I, I would think it would have been Valentino, but you know, I do not remember how we were planning that. But it, it was just such a miserable thing that happened to our personal relationship that it just died right there. So it's not necessarily this big fucking Machiavellian thing. It could just be that like nobody was fucking talking to each other. Yeah. And sometimes it's that simple. Sometimes right? it's really that simple. Alan Moore stopped because nobody was communicating with each other, but also Steve Bissett pulled his shit where he'd quit. And then a couple of years later, he did an interview with Comics Interview where he's discussing all those shit that I talked about. It's frustrations with Alan Moore, basically pointing out that Alan Moore is pretty bad at business, which is not surprising. You know, most of the big creators are. And that he ended up pulling the bag on a lot of shit. He never, to my recollection, mentions the whole stressing out and quitting and stuff and kind of leaving everybody in the lurch and not helping to facilitate the, the, the double image the way he had the other materials. But basically, he put a bunch of his shit out on Main Street. And so Alan Moore called him up and said, all right, mate, that's it. Don't call me again. Wow. And they've never spoken since. Well, it's sort of like knowing a couple and loving a couple that divorce and they're all pissed at each other, but you love them both. That's kind of, I'm the monkey in the middle. Rick and I went through, as you can imagine, or maybe you can't imagine, some hard speed bumps with the end of 63. Adding to the problems were my marriage fell apart at that point in time. I'm still best of friends with my ex-wife, Marlene, but dealing with a marriage falling apart at the same time that I couldn't get the two key players, Alan Moore and Jim Lee, even on the phone to talk to me was part of the reason I had sent that message out to Alan and Rick saying, look, I'll pencil my part of the annual, but I, I can't co-edit if I can't get people on the phone. And Rick took that hard, and I can't blame him. He and I were partners in this thing. We had started it, and here was Bissette bailing. But we had an enormous payday on each one of our issues. Both Rick and I knew this was our opportunity to do our own books. And Rick took his bankroll and did his dream comic, which was his dream comic, Roy and Rick's Rare Bed Fiends. <laughs> and my dream comic was Tyrant. Well, that was the thing. At least we, we could reprint you know, the, the six issues. And we also tried various schemes to do the annual as well. But by then, Steve had done an interview with the Comics Journal where he kind of went after Alan to a lot of th things that Alan didn't like and Alan broke off his relationship with Steve. Yeah. So that essentially kills it right there because, you know, I, I tried to bring the two of them together, you know, how it is. We know people that love each other but are mad, but it didn't work. And 63 became a casualty of that. I think Steve would like to work it out, but Alan just shut him down. And I would try to talk Alan into speaking to Steve. And Alan was always, you know, he, he didn't talk negatively about Steve. He would just sort of gently say, nope, no, I don't want to work with him anymore like that and just go on to other things. And so, so two more years later in 1998, Bissette got lawyers involved and they separated, they split up all the copyrights to the different characters, but you would expect it to be the three-way split where Veach would get certain characters, Bissette would get certain characters, 
Alan Moore would. But the way it was phrased by Veach is like, yeah, me and Alan have characters and then Bissette has his characters. Mm. Alan and I own it, but I don't think anything will ever be done with it because he's, he's quit comics. Um, I, I think it's pretty much over with. But that was the last nail in the coffin in terms of our three-way friendship partnership because anytime where you have to like break something apart like that contractually with lawyers, it just sucks. You know, it's just terrible. And so that was the last bad taste in the mouth of 1963 right there. So multiple times people have tried to either buy this property or at least like license it to put out a collected edition. There's a notable Alex Ross painting of the 1963 characters. It was going to be intended for a collection. Really? Yeah. yeah we talked to me about buying it, uh, but their offer was, you know, abysmally low. Dynamite wanted to do a collection and at first Alan said, okay, as long as my name wasn't in it. But then he made it clear that if we went ahead, he would never speak to me again. And so I knew then that, you know, I didn't want that. And I knew that he didn't want to have it out there. And as partner, he has that right to say no. Just like as a partner, I would have the right to say no. Bissette specifically has tried because he has the, the copyrights to some of the different names. Like I think he has Tales from Beyond or Tales, definitely Tales of the Uncanny. So at one point he was going to go to Mocha and he had done a, an original Inman story and he was going to bring back Tales of the Uncanny. So technically Bissette still has characters that he owns that he could put into shit. And there was, a, there was on the list last issue, there's also this 1963 one half that was going to come out of Kitchen Sink. Paul Mavridis, who is an underground cartoonist who works like for Zap, uh -huh. had a project called 1963 in the works that we didn't know about until we were a couple issues in. And like he, you know, sent word to us and going, hey, I'm doing 1963 too. I think it was Mark Baudet kind of was a middleman between us and helped us work it out where we said, if you just change yours to 1963 and a half, we'll give, change the title. We'll give you, you know, promotion space inside of our 1963 books. And he thought that was a great thing. So there is part of the story of 1963 and a half is in the Tomorrow Syndicate. Paul never finished uh, 1963 and a half. So I don't know whatever happened to that, but he was a nice guy to let us have that title. And so that's why there's some panels in that story that are alluding to 1963 and a half and the, the advertisements on the back page. The book never actually comes out though, because again, the market collapsed. So who's going to buy this thing? You got all kinds of bad blood with money. You got bad blood with the production of the original book. The whole point of the double image special was to contrast the pure mid-century superheroes with the modern image style, grim and gritty kind of characters. And again, that's something that they, they talked about with the pages that were produced, the script pages that were produced. It's like the characters are still talking like Stan Lee characters, but then you have the image guys show up, they're calling everybody, you know, who are these dorks, you know, stuff yeah, like that, yeah. talking like that. And it was supposed to contrast the two generations. And since that was going to happen 30 years ago, what's the point? Comics have moved on from this point. So Alan Moore doesn't see the point in revisiting this. There's bad blood over the fallout with the friendship. And it's just, there's no real reason to revisit besides some money. And there really isn't that much money to be made either because I don't see a lot of viability in these characters. They're clearly just pastiche. Sales have just dwindled. The whole market is down to nothing now. It was a perfectly timed for its day to do it 30 years after 1963 yeah. and 1993. And it was also, Alan was making a point about how image comics were getting lamer and lamer. <laughs> And he was going to he was going to show how the, the rich past of comics stood up against uh, modern image comics. And frankly, I really think that it was just fucking boomer bullshit. I think that all these guys were hitting forty, and this was like their big chill. They all got together and they fucked around with a bunch of stuff that was just like the comic books they grew up with, and they were like you know enjoying that. And then it stopped being fun, and Alan Moore knew that it stopped being fun. He just was ready to put it on the shelf. And Bissett, I think, kind of fucked things up by making it too much. Like made it actually like sour, kind of. Made it helped, helped to really yeah. sour it. Yeah. And 
again, like I said, Alan Moore was going through some personal stuff, and rather than being respectful of that, although they, they, he didn't, they didn't know at the time either. But I think by the time that he did the interview in '96, he might have had an inkling of that, and he still talked shit and he fucked around and found out essentially. Uh, so that seems to be the secret of it. But yeah, I was supposed, you know, and and, and this will never be collected. The issues that are out there, are the ones that are out there, because Jim Valentino had a stake in Wait, some of these characters. I, Jim Lee was going to draw the annual or the, the special, annual for yeah. this. So does that mean Jim Lee was going to try and because I, I assume, what I'm picturing was going to happen is you've got these 60s characters drawn in a 60 manner interacting with image characters drawn in like an image manner I don't even think it ever made that far because what would have made sense well, to me I mean, I mean you saw sh- you saw Shaft on the last page sure, is yeah. extremely imagey right well, well interacting- actually it's more extremely Rob uh, uh, Don Simpson-y right. trying to be imagey yeah. right 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 parody of Rob I mean you have yeah. the gums showing on sure. the teeth and shit like that I don't know I'm trying to picture in my head how Jim Lee would have actually like fucking pulled the shit yeah. it might have actually been incredible oh yeah oh like no if, if it would have been incredible draw, you just, he's, go, he's just look tra- at one of his Fantastic Four like right you know, or something. I mean that's pretty much what it was he's, he's trying to draw USA in a Kirby style right. and he's trying to draw a Ditko see, of see I, I just don't I don't buy it I don't think that no. Jim Lee can do that so I think he would have either drawn these guys to look imagey which would have been interesting yeah. in and of itself okay. although most of the designs I don't think are strong enough to really make that transition part of the planet kind of cool the planet and I think the Fury too but most of them not so much personally I think it would have been cooler if they'd gotten the Veach and, and Simpson and Beset to draw their characters and then they and Jim Lee does the rest of it yeah, yeah. and you have that contrast between like almost like a Roger no, except that thing. would have been way better if Liefeld did it oh yeah the, it, the contrast would be oh yeah that would have been hilarious are you talking about like the characters drawn one way and the backgrounds drawn a different way or yeah well no, my no, thinking no. is yeah you, you have the image guys they're draw, just drawing well, their own characters their image characters so no, when they, when they interact with bathroom. some Joe Blow so shitty like wild Roger Rabbit yeah exactly yeah I was gonna say Roger Rabbit yeah the two different styles well it's funny because you guys keep referencing backgrounds like the image guys ever drew those anyway so you know but uh random cross hatching yeah i'll let you finish and and, and smith i'll I'll let you get to that now i got i have another point to make sure this wasn't entirely the end of 1963 i think that there was some gratitude toward jim valentino for bringing them in and make giving the money that they got off this stuff and a lot of these creators did you know i'm sure chester brown got one of his best paydays off of this as a for instance too and so out of that gratitude they let jim valentino continue to use the characters so they actually appear in shadowhawk of all places i there's a story arc where he's trying to find a cure for his aids right and so he has a team up classic shadow right? and so he has the team up with chapel and they're talking since they both have the aids they're talking about all the theories about where the aids came from right well one of the ear- theories was the 1963 theory and so holy shit right right okay oh, oh we aren't even done yet so the phoebe character from trencher had taken pity on shadowhawk and was trying to help him find the cure for aids and so he's she's having him bounce between all these different places somehow phoebe is able to access alternity and get him to the 1963 earth so at least in that regard they're explicitly stating that the 1963 earth is not the same as the image earth so it's not like these are the characters from images past because they never get referenced in that way really and then later on there is actually a, a silver age shadow hawk so there'd be a whole reason to do that but that never gets referenced so Shadowhawk lands in 1963 he looks like a villain because he's all sharp edges and silver and stuff so fury thinks he's a bad guy and starts attacking him and they get into a fight eventually phoebe contacts fury and gets him to stop fighting and explains no he's a good guy no he doesn't look like it he's from another world but he's a good guy and he needs his aids medicine so please let him take off his mask and take his medicine so he takes the mask off and the fury's like you're c-c-colored <laughs> 
I mean, but that's on brand with with right. Shadow. We've covered Shadowhawk. Those Shadowhawk podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. You see, but at this point, the question is, who has more weird, fucked up politics with regard to people of color, Jim Valentino or Alan Moore? Because at least there are black people. Because like this whole thing, there's this. Could you please drop a Negro in here somewhere? You know, does this have to be like this horse really? Have, I know. And again, this is another joke they make in Shadowhawk. Is the one of the reasons why he's in the 19C3 universe is because Shadowhawk is trying to get to horse to see if the godly Egyptian power will save his life and shit. And Horus walks up and he's like, you're Horus? <laughs> you know? You're the Egyptian god because he's all fucking white and shit. He looks like fucking Yul Brenner and shit. So ultimately that doesn't work out and he's he's bummed. But also one of the things they were trying to do is they were working together to try to find Comrade Cockroach. And apparently the 1963 theory is that the evil Soviet scientist is the one who actually concocted the AIDS virus. And so they're going to try to stop him before he can d- deploy it. And you end up with the battle between all of the uh, major 1963 villains, including whoever the mystery incorporated were fighting that was supposed to be the Doctor Doom guy, because that's the guy who ended up fighting Shadowhawk. It's like, that's not even. Shadowhawk does not fight Doctor Doom. He's not a Doctor Doom level guy fighting stuff. But you got the Red Brain, and you've got uh, the Voidoid, and uh, you know, all those guys, right? Anubis. Well, the main thing, though, is they're trying to catch up with com- Comrade Cockroach. He manages to get to one of his Soviet underlings, inject him with the AIDS, and both of them end up escaping. And so that's when they, they try to give him the Egyptian treatment. It doesn't work. And so Shadowhawk leaves 1963. The end of the story is the Russian escapes, gets on a plane to Africa, is happy to be in a place where he, the people will serve him and help him with his comedy plots without chasing after him. And he especially looks forward to these dark, savage women he's planning on having some times with. That's how the fucking story ends. That basically Comrade Cockroach starts the AIDS epidemic right. in Africa. Right. And again... Why do I feel like I'm in like a Q-Ron Right, right, right. Where's fucking Kanye over here, right? You know, what the fuck is going on with this shit? Hey, yo, Comrade Cockroach, not such a bad guy. He did a lot of good things. <laughs> Jesus fucking I'm Christ. To, uh, how do I do it with the jaw? I gotta talk like Kanye with the jaw. <laughs> Through the wire. Uh, yeah, so... Hey, turn my headphones up. But at least it's not technically the image universe because, again, they've made a point of stating, but we do have the AIDS in the, the fucking plane. What the fuck? Yeah, Who wrote this? This is, fucked up. This is, this is Jim Valentino. That's Valentino. Oh, because that sounds so beach. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of fucked. And then finally, uh, Jim Valentino, after he kind of gave up on the superhero stuff, he did one of his final works as a creator in comics was a book called A Touch of Silver, which my partner at the comic shop was a fan of. She, she read that book. It was a black and white book and it was semi-autobiographical or maybe wholly autographical. I'm not sure. I'd look into it. But he's basically talking about his life and it's super depressing. He has like an abusive household or, you know, whether emotionally or physically, I don't recall because I didn't really read it myself. And his intention at the time was he was going to try to find a way of getting the Marvel and DC characters into the story and the lawyers are like no so what he ends up doing instead is to, to show comic book characters within his narrative he uses the 1963 characters and the Big Bang characters that were owned by Gary Carlson and in one of the issues of A Touch of Silver he imagines he's having a dream and he's dreaming of himself as being Silver Boy which is basically Superboy and this alien shows up and it's, it's sort of a stand in for the Legion of Superheroes wanting to invite this kid to join their team and then the Tomorrow Syndicate and the Round Table of America from Big Bang get into a fight over whether Silverboy is going to join their teams because he's just the best kid he's the most popular guy and ultimately ends up joining all three of the teams and that was the last time we got to see the 1963 characters what year was that it was early 2000s really yeah so so, so I know right it's like the the, I don't know how the fucking rights worked out for that to happen yep yep. we let him use the character well it's just one of these little scene things that uh, that, uh, you know he's as much a part of this as we were you know he was just fantastic but I guess everybody signed off on that where they wouldn't own anything else Hmm. so yeah I just I I, this it was interesting because image started off in the middle of everything and they were constantly alluding to a past that Wildstorm was pretty decent about filling in extreme not as much but 
somewhat. The rest of the guys, really not at all. Well, I guess maybe Eric Larson, but he still seems to sort of more often than not just continue to move forward. Yeah, and he's maybe, always done his own thing. Well, I mean, and he's referenced like Captain Tootsie and, and Daredevil, the, the classic Golden Age Daredevil, the, some of the public domain Golden Age people. But he doesn't do a bunch of shit that's set in the 40s and 50s and shit. He doesn't have like his own. Well, actually, I think he does have his own yeah, team. But, but, but you don't see that well, very he, often. But, but he's but not he defined. Likes, but he likes stuff like fucking Mars Attacks and shit like that. Oh, sure. Yeah. That was well, I mean, and, but like Big Bang, one of the major characters that keeps popping up is Mighty Man. You know, his his Golden and Silver Age yeah. appearances happen in that book, and then they often will get reprinted, or the stories will be told in Savage Dragon that relates to their little sub universe. So ultimately, Big Bang are the people who end up forming that retro universe within Image, where they want to pretend like they were Marvel or DC. They can. And 1963 could have served that role because of all these rights issues, and because Alan Moore had better shit to do. It just never happens. So this is this is just an abortive project. It never ends. We never get the resolution. It doesn't ever do the thing that it was kind of built up to do. And so ultimately, it's just kind of a pastiche and a rather frustrating one at that. And it's not something I really enjoyed reading that much. It was okay. I didn't hate it. It wasn't horrible or anything. But I, I wasn't enriched by it either. And it ultimately goes nowhere. You, you know what the... I mean, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong. Because I, I didn't read this stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. And I know you were trying to say it's not like a parody. It's more of an homage. Mm-hmm. But I still think there's a level of irony that you start off like, let's do it like the guys did in the six, like the old Stan Lee did, except uh, Stan Lee got his shit out. Mm-hmm. And well, they got their shit out too. Uh, not the, for not the six issues before the entire operation melted down mm-hmm. and people are not contacting each other decades later. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm not saying Stan didn't have his own breakups, but it's sort of like, you, it's almost like they imitated it to such an insane level that you had, you know, your, your Jack and Stan divorce right, and like that. Right, Like, uh, it, you uh, actually Steve like... Steve fucked off to Charlton instead of continuing with this bullshit. Uh, right, yeah. and it's just like, you started out like, oh, let's, let's do the fun that's good a, old that, days. That's a beautiful point. I did not even think about that. That is an excellent fucking point. It's, this this is this broke up the band. The, the, you know, they, this, was, this was sort of like their, one of their commercial peaks. And it's also what broke them up after a decade together at DC on stuff you, like. You got one thing. guy getting a bunch of credit while somebody else is doing all the fucking work, and it's mm-hmm. too much for him, and it blows the whole thing Holy apart. Shit. And it's just and like Alan Moore is so fucking critical of Stanley too, and he ends up ultimately pulling the same. That's shit. what I'm saying. It, it's like it, it ain't so easy. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Right. Like it, it's not anyway. Well, it's, 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 it's inherently kind of patronizing. I'm gonna write in the style of Stanley, you know, yeah. that kind of bullshit. Yeah. And you're like you said, they're parroting, and you know, I don't enjoy it as much as Stan Lee. And he's a guy who's really critical of Stanley. And the thing is, too, is it's so fucking easy to do pastiche. If it's like I'm just gonna draw like this guy, I'm just gonna write like this guy, and if it's not perfect, well, I'm just doing my interpretation. You know, it's like when I when I went to Iceland, I brought you all those postcards with these guys who had reinterpreted like Roy Lichtenstein shit, like Mike Grell, Green Arrow, and shit. It's like or fucking Lee Bermejo Gen 13. It's like yeah, it's really easy to get the fucking light box out or the freehand yeah. a copy, and that's all this ultimately ends up being is you're just freehanding a copy of shit that somebody already did something great with and this ends up coming of nothing and it seems to me like since you don't add anything to it like you're not actually doing comics in the 1960s you don't have to have all the women be underwritten and they're all like boy crazy which is an issue throughout the series as well you could have people of color in this fucking shit because it didn't really come out in 1963 and the fact that you just choose to slavishly recreate what had already existed and what you could go and fucking buy this shit you go get the fucking omnibus if you've got such a hard on for this shit it's just so lazy and it's so easy to do something but, like but, this but it's not lazy but it because, is lazy because, no writing, it's not writing, la- writing, for, for, Alan Moore's portion of it is because just writing in the style of another creator and 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 not making any alterations to improve upon that or or you know do something more but that's with part it, of what I think you know? is so ironic about it is that you started out going we're gonna do it just like they did we're gonna do it on we're gonna use the same printing methods we're gonna use the same coloring we're gonna do the same well lettering. it's not quite it's still a little bit better uh, right, yeah. right but but we're gonna go painstaking detail and it just I mean fa- 
fails miserably. But yeah. you start out doing it because you think it's not that it's going to be easy, but that it should be easy, right? Like, like it's we've already got the template. We should be able to do well, this. And, and the, the whole more, fucking thing ends up falling apart. I, I want hilarious. it, and and I'm not the one who's going to be doing the work to make it happen. But I want it. And sure, you guys have to make it. And admittedly, he's the genius. You know, it's like it's that bullshit we've been talking about a lot. And recently, he's like, your genius shouldn't negate your duty to be a decent human being. It doesn't excuse you for being an asshole. But it definitely, he's the asshole here. And, and Bissett was a bit of an asshole too. And but Moore's the one who's making sure this is never going to get it to print again. And he, mm-hmm. I'm sure he has valid emotional and material reasons not to do it. But also, he's the one who makes sure it doesn't happen. And he's the one who created the situation that caused the fallout in the first place. So who is the asshole? Is it Bissett or is it Alan Moore? It's definitely not Peach. Is the one thing I definitely was a clear takeaway. It's not his fault. But these guys were both being jerks and Moore's like can't deal with the realities of what he's demanding of other people. You know, so everybody has to fucking clean up his messes and help him to build his shit because he's such a genius. We just have to do everything we can to facilitate that. He doesn't have any obligation to the people he's working with in that regard. Kind of bullshit. I mean, it's, yeah, like like you said, maybe there's a lot more parallels to Stan Lee than he would care to appreciate. Admit. Yeah. I mean, here's another part of the 63 tragedy because if we'd held it together, we wouldn't have been working for Awesome and there wouldn't have been ABC. Alan would have been exploring all this retro stuff he had in him through 1963 and we would all would have benefited from it. They'd probably yep. still be, we'd be doing them today. Supreme. Yeah. Because Alan really is a Superman writer. Like he, he wants to do Superman and he would have brought him into 1963 somehow. I'd just like to apologize to all the fans out there that we blew it. Um, and uh, I don't think Jim Lee is the culprit here. I think mm-hmm. it was a much larger mess than than, than just Jim. And I, I take blame for us three partners who should have held it together, but we didn't uh, for the reason it didn't happen. But I apologize to the fans. I would like nothing better than to have continued this work, but it didn't happen. I, you know, I kick myself because I think there were times where I could have talked sense to Steve. You know, we go back so far and we were so tight. And uh, But I was just exhausted and I was mad because the thing was dumped in my lap. So I, I, I didn't do what I should have done, I don't think. We're still yeah. friends. You know, it's, we don't work together in a day-to-day basis. But, um, you know, we're still good friends. We've got this amazing history together. And put us in the same room and created a sparks fly still. Well, if people want to see my new stuff, they can just go on Amazon. Um, I've been releasing a new Maxim Mortal work called mm-hmm. Boy Maxim Mortal. Um, I've been releasing new issues of Rarebit Fiends, my dream comic. And I've been doing this series called Panel Vision, which are uh, comic books that are one panel per page. And I think I've released four of those now. And I'm doing all that through Amazon. And uh, you look me up there, you'll find it. <laughs> Okay, had the freak in it. Yeah. It seemed like a ripoff of the Punisher a little bit with Freak's origins where his family was wiped out by this I guess unseen, unknown group of criminals and that he was some kind of CIA agent, which was really weird because Spawn up to this point was kind of a dick to everybody. And then all of a sudden he sympathizes with the freak and actually joins him. Some of the dialogue was weird because it didn't seem like Spawn. He was kind of like, let's go, buddy. We'll take care of it. So the freak t- tells him this horror story of this doctor who had his family killed and he was almost killed and they transformed him into some kind of freaky monster. And he's mutated. And so he wants Spawn to go with him to go after him. 
The Freak, of course, looking very much like a Iggy Pop with long hair, Be My Dog type vibe off him. Yeah, so Spawn goes with him. They go into this underground bay, or they go into the sewer where he has like a mansion built in. And Spawn is somehow impressed by this. And then they come up through a sewer into a, a laboratory and all these orderlies come running at him. Spawn starts, I'm assuming, either killing him or beating him up. I couldn't tell because, it, I mean, it looks pretty brutal. Until they get to the doctor, which is like Dr. Demento or some weird name like that. And he pulls out a gun and the freak kills him. Well, the, you know, I'm sorry. No, the freak throws him out a window and he dies. And then later on, we learn that the freak is a liar, basically, that his wife, they can't, because he told Spawn, oh, my wife is dead, my kids. Turns out his wife had told him she didn't want to have kids, which drove him insane. And he's had some nervous breakdown ever since. And so he's just running loose. He tells Spawn, kind of, he's like an anti-hero like him. He's going after other villains. And at the end, Spawn tells him, I hope you can finish him off. And he says, I guess he does. His bubble, his letter bubbles change almost like an evil color. So I didn't know if he was a demon or is he possessed? or so. I think he's just a garden variety crazy person at this point at least. You like the action figure? Yeah, I have the action figure. I mean, I don't like it. I just I, it was part of my collection. Yeah, I'm figures. not super into the character of the action figure. Remember he was introduced in uh, Image Zero. He, I think he's, him and him and Trimmer are the only two I think that came out of Image Zero from Todd McFarlane to be developed into characters that actually appeared in Spawn. Well, like I told you, I had the figure and didn't even realize he was in the comic. I right. thought because was, there was a run of figures that I don't think ever appeared in any comics. Oh yeah. There's a bunch of those characters I'd like to see appearing yeah i really like the native american spawn and the buffalo saber guy uh, he was cool oh, well, i like like the chaos ones like the crab chick and oh total chaos i think it's called yeah. yeah so okay so this was alan moore's last regular issue of spawn as i recall did he, he really wrote this i think he scripted it yeah are we really sure but like did he just like you know freak, I, i'm sure that guy i'm sure the, the check cleared you know yeah so oh, pretty wow. bad right oh yeah I, I, i'm a big alan moore fan and this was i remember i told you I well i just say the plot was Tom mcfarlane it was alan moore scripting over Todd before but that's the thing though, the scripting was bad like yeah. the dialogue was bad yeah it was real basic very paycheck gig yeah. you're, just, you're shocked that Alan Moore lacked the integrity to do something better with or it add a twist or something yeah. or made it made it well I mean it does have a twist it's just not no, it's it, not it, that twist is coming a mile away and I was going to say too that Spawn being impressed with his underground mansion given that he has his crowd yeah. thrown his debris yeah. it kind of feels like a Spawn thing really I think the whole thing is that Al uh, Al uh, sees himself in the freak and so he's willing to help the freak well, no 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 I get that I get that that was the way they bonded right it's just weird that Al who is a US black ops operative yeah, who Lieutenant trusts Colonel. no one right. all of a sudden trusts some little crackhead yeah, yeah. in the street and I'm just like that's really I mean that well, was we really Al's kind of dumb though not, not kind of dumb he's not, really dumb not that dumb though that, the, like, clown, the clown is not incorrect when he's call, constantly calling Spawn dumb because he does tons of dumb stuff but not this dumb dude like he fell for it I don't know it just yeah. like I said the dialogue it was just like he was like let's go buddy well, right. I'll help you and I'm just like everything I've read up to this is he's like fuck off let me alone Wanda 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 yeah. as I'm like why, well, but, but again, the guy's trying to get back to his wife. He totally relieved to that. Yes, but it was kind of like, but it was. Now, my only thing was, did the freak know Spawn's origins, and that's why he was able to play him so? I well? don't think so because I, I don't. I still don't think that the freak is doing it on purpose. I think he's. Dude, there, there has to be some manipulation because at the end, his word bubbles change into a yellowish red. Yeah, almost like Violator or any of them. Well, like, maybe he's multiple personality. I don't know. I, 
I mean, it would have been cool if it turns out he was possessed or some shit like that. Right. I'm like, okay, that's kind of neat. Yeah. That's exorcism me. And I want to say, I think the freaks come back in later times, like like the the once they became more of a horror book yeah. a few years back. So I guess maybe he'll get developed at some point. But as of this, now, freak is a terrible character, and yeah. he shouldn't have a book that's worth twenty five dollars at a convention or bull, you know, any of that bullshit. Really? Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but we recorded that that streak of spawn issues, and we got to this one, and you hadn't read it yet, and you were hearing it as Alan Moore's like, "Well, I want to wait, and I'll come yeah. back to it." We came back to it. We went the way it was. No, no. Nineteen sixty-three number one was April nineteen ninety-three's number fifteen title in unit sales and number twelve in dollars, selling five hundred seventy-seven thousand copies per Diamond Distribution's top three hundred chart. Coupled with the one hundred forty-nine thousand six hundred twenty-five thousand copies sold by Capital City, that would be a print run of nearly three quarters of a million copies. However, that's also a huge disparity between the two distributors. So either Diamond's numbers were the estimated total print run reported to them by Image Comics, or my previous doubling of Capital's numbers for industry estimates was terribly misguided. Nineteen sixty-three. Number two was May 1993's number 29 title, as reported by Wizard Magazine number 23. Number 24 said that 1963 number three was June 1993's number 58 title. Number four was July 1993's number 71 title. Number five was August 1993's number 85 title. And 1963 number six was September 1993's number 87 title per diamond, as reported by Wizard number 27. So 30 years later, 1963 remains incomplete, but not for a lack of many people trying. Aided by his students at the Center for Cartoon Studies, Bissett began working on a detailed history book about a pretend publishing line. Feeling the 1963 properties fit well with his own ideas that never found a home, Bissett tried to launch his own not- Comics Universe, N-A-U-T. Quote, In the end run, what we've got is a 200-plus page paperback book featuring an invented history of not comics and its stars, The Fury, In-Man, The Hypernaut, Commander Solo, The Screaming Sky Dogs, Banana Man, and much, much more. A 16-page preview sold out at the 2010 Mocha Arts Festival, and Tales of the Uncanny, In-Man and Friends, A Not Comics History, Volume 1, was intended for release from About Comics later that year. A variety of creators were involved on a work-for-hire basis, including Don Simpson. I did a I did an End Man story for Steve, which he still hasn't published. He owns End Man. He owns the Fury. We did a ten page story for End Man two or three years ago, and I said, but I I kept I just kept saying this. I say this periodically online. Why the, Why the fuck don't you guys finish this thing? You're grown people. This is creator owned comics. This is not Hollywood. This is not some evil corporation that is stopping this. This is just ego bullshit. Just grow up and do this. And Steve, like, well, it's not me. I I thought that I'd read somewhere that Alan Moore had issued a cease and desist on the project, but in researching again for this podcast, it actually looks to have fallen apart on Bissett's end. Bissett officially retired from comics in 1999, and during COVID, retired from the Center for Cartoon Studies as well. Whether that gives him the time to finally work on his not universe or tyrant remains to be seen, but others are not waiting to find out. The California newspaper, The Patterson Irrigator, featured an article on March 11, 2021, about a local comics publisher, William Hoffneck's 100% Comics, stylized as H percentage sign C offers underground zines and merch. Envisioning a revival of Peter Laird's Zurich Grants that helped launch and sustain many small publishers in the 1990s, Hoffneck sought to fund his own Make More Comics grant through crowdsourced compilation comics donated by creatives. 
After the success of his unofficial cover version of Barry Windsor Smith's Wolverine Saga Weapon X, 100% Comics was beginning work on Giant Size 63, having been granted a license to Bissett's characters and essentially stealing the rest under the cover of Fair Use Parody. So at minimum, Bissett is well aware and has given his blessing to at least one proposed 1963 conclusion. However, this announcement had unintentionally stepped on the toes of Don Simpson. They did the six issues, Bissett and Veach. I think one of Rick's stories, the U.S. agent, I did a bunch of the lettering. Rick fired me and I only did half of 1963 and I was out of it. You know, I had nothing to do with anything that transpired after it. After a pair of substandard reprints, the revered 1986 short story in Pictopia were authorized by Moore, things hit a snag when Simpson finally arranged a quality definitive version. You have to go through a third party because nobody can talk directly to Alan Moore anymore. It hasn't happened for years. I had spoken briefly when I was lettering 1963. I had a transatlantic phone call with Alan. The only thing I remember from that, I, I don't know what I was asking him about, but I said, uh, you have me as Dapper Don. I said, I'd like to be Dandy Don. He said, well, you're you're the letterer. You can be whoever you want. But having to contact Alan Moore since then, I had to go through Chris Staros. You have to email Chris Staros, and then you had to email somebody else. Fanographics had been the first original publisher, and they had been the only one who did a, did a good job. So I uh, agreed, and but then he said, you have to... <laughs> You have to call, you have to contact Alan and get his permission. So I had been through this routine before. I thought, oh, Jesus. I heard back from his intermediary. He said, well, Alan says he's fine with the arrangement, but he doesn't want his name on the story. And I was like, really insulted and offended. And after all this crap with, with a couple terrible versions of the story being published, and here I'd gone to this trouble to get somebody that would actually do a good job, and they had done a good job, and they were going to do a good job. He finally wrote me a letter, which uh, was cut and pasted into an email, and apparently he had problems with fanographics and with uh, an interview that was conducted. It all sounded exactly like the Michael Fleischer lawsuit, is what it sounded like. He was offended at an interview transcript, transcript of an interview with Steve Bissett, where apparently Steve said something honest. And Alan also claimed that there were editorials in the Comics Journal that, about how greedy he was for working for Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane and whatever. I went along with his request to take his name off it, although we didn't really have to. I thought I could convince him to change his mind. I overestimated my charm ability. And I just I just left it up to Gary. I said, we got all the materials. I'm not going to reprint this story with anybody else. I'm tired of this bullshit with Italians and Germans and everybody else. I wanted to include the, the script. Alan didn't want to go for that either. My only concern, I'm not ma I haven't made any money off of this thing yet for all my scanning and all this other nonsense. I just wanted to have a historical document for the record. We have to create this documentary history against the will of the author. So the whole thing was just really ugly and very sad, but the book turned out great. Simpson had secretly been working on his own 1963 resolution, but had not bothered to get any permissions or license anything from Bissett. I'm a fan like anybody else. I want to read the end of this story, but it hasn't even been collected. And the, again, this is my guess. But the main reason that this project was never finished was because Alan Moore just didn't feel like finishing it. it. You can't think of another writer who had more clout, Jim Lee or not Jim Lee. Anybody could have drawn this thing. I would have drawn it. Rick could have drawn it. Steve could have drawn it. Ron Friends could have drawn it. Anybody could have drawn the 
the damn thing. There is a plot, I understand. Jim Valentino has the plot outline to this day, but he's never shown it to anybody. Alan Moore made about half a million dollars just from, from 1963, one through six. It wasn't like he was hurting for money. It wasn't like he had to go out and dig ditches to put food on the table. He just didn't feel like writing this annual. And it means absolutely nothing to him that he promised the fans, let alone his collaborators. I mean, Rick and Steve owned a piece of it. Forget about them. Alan Moore could finish it. He could wrap this up anytime he wants. I decided people will accuse me of being um, completely on Steve Bissett's side, which I am because he's the only one I talk to. I don't talk to Rick. for obvious reasons. It's odd to me that that I'm I'm modeling myself on John Byrne and elsewhere. I think it's really amazing that this guy, he was a company guy. He, he would never do anything without permission from the editorial offices in New York. And here he is, he's, he's writing and drawing and inking his own X-Men story, completely without editorial permission, completely without any lawyer approving it, using trademarks. Not very many people agree with me at all, but I think that's an incredibly significant development in the history of intellectual property rights and the internet and people are asking me i post this on i post this on facebook and people ask is this a real thing (laughs) you really are you really doing 1963 annual and i say well it's a real it's a you're looking at a real picture i don't know what else it is does it have to be in print do i need permission from uh jim valentino i'm not going to get it i'm not going to ask for it i don't care it's 1963 i was born in 1961 you know i can't think of anybody that was treated better in the world of work for our comics. I mean, he had Karen Berger and he had DC Comics tripping all over him. Everybody treated him like royalty. Everybody, when when you collaborated with Alan Moore and especially Rick Beach, Bissett, Tottleman, they all acted like they were the Beatles. I mean, they thought, I mean, they, they thought the world, we all thought the world of Alan Moore. And people are talking about, well, he's perfectly within his rights to take his name off and he's perfectly within his rights to pocket the money and never finish this 63. And he's, he's got this right and that right. I I can't imagine thinking like that. Maybe it's because I spent time outside of comics. I worked at Borders. I mean, I could tell you a sob story about, you know, what I've been doing for these 30 years, but I certainly don't have Bloomsbury giving me six figures. Teach writing at a college, I'm an adjunct. You know, I've been lucky enough. People remember me. People throw money at me for commissions and they invite me to shows. There are a few people that just know me because I, I did an Alan Moore story or two. I just can't imagine looking at the world the way the author... <laughs> of Impictopia looks at the world. I just can't imagine it. But I actually, I couldn't pay the rent. That's why I had to stop. Not because I had a half a million dollars in the bank and Todd McFarlane hiring me to write Spawn. His story simply alters the character names and designs enough to, if anything, have stronger legal protections than 100% comics' effort. Of course, the planned interactions with Image Comics characters weren't likely, at least not from the pages available online as of December of last year. A silhouetted cameo gag is about all that amounted to. About 70 pages are written in penciled with 30 inked now presumed to be published as x amount of comics under the story title 1963 when else annual certainly a lot more pages than the 100 comics version which offers no mention of the project on its website not even the logo for giant size 63 that simpson featured on his blog while claiming to envy it it however goes without saying that three primary creators and a slew of additional help went into creating 1963 and only a third of those people are still trying none of whom bear the imminence of alan moore Simpson's Fuck Al, it's the 1963 annual, is very clearly more in line with his own bizarre heroes than their original premise. 
but is a blow to the cult of Moore's endless reverence for its flawed deity and an acknowledgement that Moore has deprived his co-creators of agency and proceeds from a property they also own, I'm here for it. As Bessette has noted, his DC royalties from Work for Hire Swamp Thing have come in more or less like clockwork, where anything he's tried to do with the 1963 properties have only cost him money since the initial publication. We wouldn't be talking about 1963 30 years later if not for Moore, as evidenced by Jim Valentino's The Alliance, Rob Liefeld's Operation Night Strike, or even the more recently abandoned Image United. But also part of what we're talking about is Alan Moore being anything but affable. Simpson points out on his blog that none of these guys have Alan Moore money, and while Moore now detests and denounces his time in comics, they'd really like to see this thing finished for an industry they still have affection for, while they and it still have time left on this earth. I do have to say, though, all the people fighting over whether or not there should be an ending and what it should be is frankly more interesting than the pastiche that was 1963 itself. So we got Twitter attention from 20th Century Geek Podcast, 21st Century Boys, Adriano, Alan Achenbach, Billy Hines, Bream, CH, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Eugene R. Hendricks, voice actor, home studio, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, Jason Snick Venable, Jeffrey Brown, They, Them, Joctastico, K, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Marvel Universe Online Project, Michael Alexander McCarthy, Mike It Send Aliens to Me, The Projection Booth Podcast, Rihanna Mike on Hive, Sort of, Richard Field, Siskoid, Superbound, Talk Nerdy to Me, Tim Price the Podcrasher, Thomas Scari, Two True Freaks, You Should Be Listening, and Oofda. On Tumblr, Duddy, Nas, T-Dog, 69 Freak, liked Spawnometer number 24, Bloodstrike, Del Dracula liked and commented on episode 0036, Spawn 25th Anniversary Director's Cut, I Have the Boxes, No Serial for Batman TMNT. He also commented on the blog, I bought one of the first wave Angela figures McFarlane released. Her arm was detached when I opened the packaging, and that was pretty much, but not literally, the end of my personal association with McFarlane's toys. My other toy comment, Hasbro must have reacquired the big time sports league licenses because they started making starting lineup figures again. Ladies and gentlemen, and any dogs or cats that may be listening, it's our Comic Code Authorities, Comic Historians podcast with yours truly, Bill Field, Alex Grand, and Jim Thompson. Hi, David. How are you? Oh, Peter, man, I've been better. I'm really fed up and depressed. I can't lie. What's wrong? What's been happening? Man, I'm just really dissatisfied and really down as far as fulfilling my podcast needs right now. What exactly are you looking for? Maybe a DC Comics podcast? Yeah, there's plenty of those. Yeah, I know, but I need one that... Chronicles the origins and the development of the DC Comics multiverse from before Flash of Two Worlds through to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah, exactly that. And maybe something else as well that factored in the importance and the legacy of DC Comics Golden Age characters throughout the Silver Ages and Bronze Ages of comics. That sounds epic. It does sound epic. It sounds exactly the sort of podcast that I would listen to. Shall we just do it ourselves then? many ways we have the same mind. That's a great idea. Fortunately, it just so happens I've built this handy transmatter cube. That's perfect. Will that take us to Earth too? It'll take us to all of the multiverse. Fantastic. Right then, what are we waiting for? Let's go. Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. The, the Earth, Earth 2, 2 Podcast. Podcast. Check out our website at theearth2podcast.com you can find us on all the social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as the Earth 2 Podcast. And you can find us on Twitter, podcast underscore Earth 2. Join us and we'll see you around the multiverse.
Welcome to the Marvel Age Podcast, featuring the Sarcastic Four. Episode 1. 1961 through 1962. Nation, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the very first episode of the Marvel Age Podcast. My name is Nick Duke, one of those co-hosts for this podcast being, of course, Mr. Tim Capel. Very good, <laughs> Nick. Thank you for that uh, most illustrious introduction. And, of course, we did not we did not come alone, as we rarely do here on Place to Be Nation Pop. We are also joined by the manager himself out on the West Coast, Mr. Todd Weber. And, finally, but not least importantly, we are also joined by the another member of the Southeastern contingent of Place to Be Nation Pop. He is the host of the Sellers Points podcast, Mr. Russell Sellers. I came like fire. You may be asking yourself, what exactly is a Marvel Age podcast? And the answer to that question is it's going to be a series of podcasts entirely concerning themselves with the publishing history of Marvel Comics, dating back to the very inception of the Marvel Universe all the way back in November 1961. We kind of decided to do this, I think, for Marvel as opposed to their distinguished competition, is that unlike DC, Marvel is very proud of the fact they've never technically entirely rebooted their continuity. And so, however tenuous the links may be today, you could technically trace some of these stories all the way back to November of 1961, and that's what we're going to try to do here. The goal is to go through a year of history per episode, to start with at least. Once we get into some of the more decompressed stories, we're obviously going to have to pause and take our time, but basically what you're going to find here is a snapshot of each year. 63 is going to be a hell of a year. I'm looking forward to doing it, and I hope you guys are as well. So unless anybody else has anything they want to add, I have loved doing this with you guys. I can't wait for another episode to our listeners, and stay tuned for 1963 to be covered... This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended, and any use of copyrighted materials will need to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell! 